Day eight, these guys just come downstairs like, you're gonna break your hunger strike. And I was like, no, I'm not. They beat me up and then they drag me upstairs with my hands tied behind my back. They put me on a chair and the guy who is the leader of these guys very frustratingly looks at me and he's like, look, you are disrupting the peace in the prison. You are making our lives miserable. Our leadership is like freaked out because if anything happens to you, we have to answer to the Americans. This is nothing personal. This is prison. There is rules here, regulations here. You have to eat. And I look up to him because he said it's not personal and I look up to him and I was like it wasn't personal before but you made it personal now and in that moment I could see something breaking inside of him he didn't say a word after that this is Safi Rauf and in 2022 he was captured by the Taliban for 105 days during that time he was tortured beaten and even went on hunger strike and today he's going to explain how he escaped a refugee camp negotiated his freedom with a smuggled phone, and survived being a Taliban hostage. Now, enjoy one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Welcome to camp. Safi. Yes. Safi Rauf. Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. Nice. Awesome. I've been working on it literally all morning. That was like my morning ritual. I was just in the mirror. Thank you. I said it six times. I expected you to appear. I was very nervous. Um, I just listened to your conversation with Jon Stewart, and it was amazing. He rightfully called you Batman. Yes which I feel like you've really taken upon yourself since that moment. Like, I feel like you're dressing in leather jackets now. Yeah. Like, you got the vibe. It's actually really uh, funny. I have this ID a badge from 2019. So when pandemic happened, I was part of the uh, Navy component that was deployed to New York. And that operation was called uh, Operation Gotham City. So oh, really? I have this badge that says Gotham Operation Gotham City and says my name and I was like this is so You were literally Batman before he called you Batman. I yeah, mean that is awesome. I, I don't know how he knew. I know. How he knew. Yeah. People just know. They just look at you nearly. It's like it's the vibe, you know. 100%. So I'm really excited to talk. I have been thinking about this for a long time and I've just been reading through your tweets which are awesome. Um and I want to talk about, you know, Human First Coalition and all of the work that you're doing and all of that, but I'm curious we were just talking a little bit before about early life. Yeah. So could you tell me, I just want to start with where you grew up, where you were born in the first like 10 years of your life, what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, it's like any everybody else's story, you know. <laughs> I don't think Kinda. so. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I grew up uh, in a suburb, okay? It's very different than your story. <laughs> yeah. So my family, uh, my dad, uh, initially, he was, uh, uh, four of his uh, siblings were uh, killed in a Russian airstrike in Afghanistan, which, you know, again, very relevant <laughs> Um, and then he was like, I can't just sit down and watch this. So, uh, he's, he worked for, uh, um, uh, international rescue committee. Oh, really? He's, he was uh, doing like activism type of work in yeah, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. And, uh, he wasn't for, uh, having, uh, going and, you know, killing a bunch of Russians or killing just anybody. So he started, uh, smuggling, uh, medicine for the, uh, the the freedom fighters that were fighting against the Russians at the time. And then one day he has this huge uh, bag of medicine that he had just uh, procured from his uh, CIA connections. And he's uh, standing uh, f waiting for the bus and all of a sudden a bunch of Russians just surround him and they catch him with all that medicine and they're like, who's this medicine for? He's like, these are not mine. Uh, and then he was taken to, uh, he was in jail for uh, about three and a half months before he paid off uh, one of the guards and uh, he kind of snuck out. And then that day, uh, and I mean, he was tortured and like all kinds of uh, horrible things were, ha were done to him. But then he 
uh, escaped to Pakistan, and he was there for a year without uh, my mom and siblings. Oh wow! And then a year later, he snuck back in and uh, took my uh, my mom and my siblings, and they went and moved to a refugee camp in Pakistan. Oh, that's why. So you were alive at this point. You were just very young. Uh, no, that and and that's when I was born. I was born in the refugee camp. Oh wow! Uh, I okay. was born in the refugee camp, and uh, and then I I did. I kind of grew up. I have a lot of siblings. I have ten siblings. Oh, cool! And um, I was sort of homeschooled uh, through through my like initial form- formative years. Dude, maybe we are the same. I, yeah. my, I have six siblings, and I was also homeschooled. <laughs> nice. Basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah, man, honestly. Exactly. You know, I, I don't see a difference. No, me neither. <laughs> so you're in the refugee camp. What are, what is your dad like from that experience of having to be, I guess like kicked out of Afghanistan at that point like is he jaded towards the Russians is he does he have animosity towards the Afghan government what is his feeling I mean he he doesn't my, my dad is like he's he's really old now and he's the sweetest person you'll ever meet uh, and the only people that he hates with an absolute passion is the Russians really he does not have any animosity towards anyone else well it makes sense right yeah. like you see a bunch of people in your family tragically killed by you know an armed force that's yeah. in your country you're gonna get animosity yeah exactly and and it was a very tragic death as well because uh his sister uh had a a child uh had just had a child and what she was doing is uh when the airstrikes uh they, when they started dropping bombs she took the kid in her um in, in her lap she took him outside because when they would bomb the houses they collapse and then people would be stuck underneath so, so it's almost safer to be outside to be outside so she went and sat by the wall outside uh with the baby and while she was feeding the baby uh breastfeeding the baby uh that's when a bomb dropped and basically uh killed her and there were shrapnels stuck in the baby's uh head and he was Holy alive shit. for a few days and then he died so it's that kind of uh, horrific things that uh, they were doing at the time. And that your dad had to see and went through with yeah. the people that were closest to him. And your dad has young children at the same time. Exactly. So he's thinking about his own kids. Yeah, and it it was... It, it just isn't fair. Like, war is one thing, but uh, historically, the, the the Russians have just been more brutal than everyone else. Hmm. And it, it it has been proven time and time again. Has the current invasion of of Ukraine kind of sort of invoked the similar feelings in you and your dad just in, in recent months? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of strange because at that time, uh, sort of the Ukrainian military was also in Afghanistan at the time. Oh, they really? were part of the Russian uh, Russian army at the time. So it's, it's sort of like... Uh, uh, a weird dynamic for for my dad to see that the people who were uh, invading Afghanistan are fighting against each other now. So it's uh, <laughs> right. So he was being oppressed by both sides, and now they're at war with each other. So yeah. it creates like probably a convoluted internal feeling of like, yeah. oh, this is reminding me of that thing, but also it's different because of I guess the geopolitical context. Yeah. Oh, that's um, fascinating. And did he have to leave Afghanistan, or did he make the choice to oh, leave? No, he had to leave because. Most people who were arrested by Russians at the time, they were executed. Eventually, they were all executed. Got it. So, uh, in fact, when he escaped, 
he went home and literally f- he was there for five minutes to say goodbye to my uh, mom and siblings and his dad. And five minutes later, he left. And five minutes later, the entire village was surrounded by Russian troops looking for him. Wow, looking for him specifically. Looking for him specifically because they had uh, identified where he lived and his house and all that. So and they were looking for him because of his connection to CIA and medicine and trying yeah. to like support the uh, the fighters. Exactly. And I mean, he had, he escaped from prison. So <laughs> right. they were looking for him. Right. Um, oh, wow. So, okay. So he has to leave. Mm-hmm. And in Pakistan at the time, they have an open policy of taking Afghan refugees. Is that Yeah. Is that true? So that was at the time, uh, the borders were wide open. Uh, and also like Pakistan has 1700 mile border with uh, with Afghanistan right you just can't uh, control the control whole the whole thing and uh, historically all of that border uh, has been used from like hundreds of years by different uh, different tribes and conquerors and occupiers and all kinds of people to cross right and nobody can control that border it's just there's it's very porous and there's a lot of places you can uh, sneak through. Sure. So, so now little baby Safi is born yeah. <laughs> in this refugee camp, just a cute little kid. Yeah. And uh, still cute, by the way. Oh, okay. Yes. And, uh, and my girlfriend would agree. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> um, and living in this refugee camp, what is it like to grow up in a refugee camp? I have only like a fictionalized Hollywood version in my mind, but can you explain like the day to day? Yeah. And every refugee experience is different. It's there's, there's uh, commonalities. Uh, there's a lot of things common between refugees where um, you are stateless, you have no rights, you every day, you're, you basically uh, spend your uh, days uh, with pack bags. You don't unpack your bags because no day is certain that you will be, you will be allowed to live where you're living at the time. Uh, that's one of the common things, but there, there is a lot of differences as well. Some refugees basically live in uh, the, the green and white UNHCR tents. However, some refugees who live in that refugee camp and then they remain there for many years, they start building something like start building uh, mud houses, start building, uh, start adding more tents or um, start renting houses in the nearest neighborhoods. Gotcha. So it's it's different uh, experiences. It's a lot of the times uh, people kind of imagine that refugees are all living in these white and uh, green tents that we have seen on the news or in movies and uh, all over, but it, it's different. So our situation was kind of a mix of all of them. Sometimes we had to live in a camp. Sometimes we could just go rent a house outside, outside in the city. Um, initially, uh, until grade uh, fifth grade, I didn't go to school. Uh, so I was mostly kind of homeschooled. And then I got into uh, a really good school. And uh, I went to school there and for about six years. And who was homeschooling you? Uh, it wasn't organized. Right. It was just, I, a lot of the times I, I used to read my uh, siblings' books. I loved reading books. And I didn't r- like to read just any books. I, I liked reading fiction, stories. Um, and in a lot of their books, I would, I would ask my siblings, like, what's a good story I can read? And then they would show me this is a good story and then I would read it. And it was, uh, it's, uh, it's still fascinating to me how I learned to read because there wasn't a uh, organized or uh, way of my siblings or my parents, somebody like sitting me down and 
teaching me. Right. Um, and so you just kind of learn to read just through like power of will, just like going yeah. through books being like, I'm going to know what this I'm going to know this. And that's that's how I do everything. Uh, you know, until this day, I pick something up. I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn this. I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and you'll, you'll learn this. That I, Everything I've done in life so far, some of the most difficult things that people are like, it will blow their mind. And it's just like, I picked it up and I'm like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to learn it and I'm going to do it. And so what language are you reading in? So uh, my mom speaks uh, Dari and Farsi. Okay. My dad speaks Pashto. And I was reading in Urdu. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's it, it was a, 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 a jumble of uh, four languages. What were you speaking at home predominantly? Uh, Pashto predominantly. And Pashto, I guess, is that like a similar like Arabic dialect that's found in Afghanistan? Um, no, it's very different. Oh, it's really? actually closer to uh, to Hebrew than it is to Arabic. Oh, really? Oh, uh, interesting. But then Arabic is close to Hebrew as well, so it's it's kind of it's actually older than Arabic. The language is older. Uh, it has a much lengthier alphabet. It has 46 letters. Right. Uh, so and, and many more sounds. So you're speaking Pashto growing up, but then you're getting these Urdu books, which is a predominant language in Pakistan, and then you're just forcing yourself to read in a different language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that's uh, and uh, and then you go outside, and then some people speak Punjabi, some people speak Urdu, some speak Pashto. So that's one of the things from the refugee camps that. Um, I like to blend in. I never, uh, I, I, I don't like to, uh, to be singled out because when you are a refugee, you are persecuted and, uh, you are always trying to, uh, kind of blend in, in that environment so that people don't pick on you. Mm. And as a kid growing up, that was always my defense mechanism in school. I never told anybody I was a refugee. So because you, you're going to school with just regular Pakistani like, kids. Like Pakistanis and you don't want to tell them that you're a refugee because then they start calling you names. Uh, so that 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 was my motivation to be fluent in all those languages mm. and sound like a native. Right. And what stories were you reading? Do you remember any of the books that you read that acted as like a like an escape? Yeah, I mean, I mean Alibaba um um, Aladdin, um, and all of those, uh, some stories that have become, you know, Disney musicals. Right. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I think a lot of the stories are kind of universal. Mm -hmm. So you, you read a lot of the, uh, sort of the same stories. Now, when you're in the refugee camp for the formative parts, are, you said you're living in tents for a little and then living in, I guess, like regular houses. Like how did that work? It, it was also... One of the things that uh, the refugees are really uh, kind of targeted in different countries is you you basically find a house to rent and then you start renting it and then the uh, the homeowner is basically like, well, the tent the 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 rent for next month is gonna be this much. It could be double for of of what you guys agreed on. And then you, you can't say anything. You can't go to the authorities because you're actually not allowed to be living outside the camp with the tents. Wow. So you're, you're kind of living illegally outside this, this sort of tent city is dedicated for refugees to live in. And you can't go outside this tent to mix with the population and to live out there. So what you do is if the police catches you, you just pay them 
you you bribe them and you rent a place for a little bit more than what a local person would pay but then they take advantage of that and they uh the, they are like okay next month the rent is going to be double and then triple so we moved a lot we moved a lot from uh place to place so a lot of the times just if we found found a place to rent we would go live in that or living in the tent city or uh living in a mud house so it, it was just a lot of uh different things and even if we rented a house it was always two bedrooms uh and then you know 10 10 siblings so what you would just, the what would the room look like if you have 10 siblings oh you just all sleep on the on the floor next to each other and it's just like a line of just people uh bodies laying oh, on wow. the floor yeah that is wild so you are bouncing around from all these different houses but consistently at the same school and it was a good school and you were uh, really yeah. focused on fitting in yeah i was uh super i was adamant about fitting in uh and i i watched a lot of hollywood movies oh really so that's how i learned english um, um so uh, when i came to the us i once again could easily fit in right but it's the color doesn't help uh, <laughs> you can pass for latino though you go to texas you are just a perfect mexican bro honestly yeah, yeah i mean it's either good or really bad yeah i guess depends on the neighborhood you're in. <laughs> but i mean did you watch a lot of top gun because you got like the leather jacket yeah like, you got I the mean, vibe uh, I, i'm in the navy reserve so it's it's kind of uh uh, I, I have to represent. Yeah. Uh, so it's Top Gun. Obviously, I grew up. I grew up wanting to be a a, a pilot. A, oh really? A, a oh, fighter cool. pilot. Uh, but when I when I came to the U.S., um, I just had a conversation one day with somebody, and I was like, Yeah, I, I want to go and you know, be a pilot and fly like jets and stuff. And they were like, Are you kidding me? You're brown. Nobody's gonna <laughs> let you fly a seventy million dollar plane. <laughs> and so it it's just like those uh th those things that i had to deal with right uh, everywhere sure so okay how do you go from like you know sixth grade seventh grade safi to then graduating from the school and what is like teenage years in the refugee camp are you like getting into fights are people picking on you do you feel a need to like defend your family's honor like how does that work i had um i had a lot of responsibilities uh when i was uh 11 my parents left uh, my parents came to the U.S., and a lot of my older siblings, they had gone places uh, for work, for getting married, and all different kinds of... Uh, I have a twin sister, and then I have a younger sister. So the three of us uh, remained in Pakistan for four years. So my teenagers were basically taking care of my two sisters. I mean, you were, you were 11 years old. Yeah. And your family just said, hey, we got to go. And, and you got to be the man of the house. Did you, there were no older family, like a cousin that you were staying with? Or? No, I was, I was the oldest male in the house. And in those societies and communities, it's basically the, even if you're 11 years old, you're the in charge wow. in the home because uh, women are not, uh, sort of don't have a, a lot of public life or don't go and uh, uh, do things that you know guys mostly do like grocery shopping or uh, paying the bills or dealing with landlords or dealing with um, electricity and how did companies. you feel your parents sit down with you and they're like hey we're gonna go to the United States I guess they they had an opportunity to go and they needed to take it when it came up it was always understood like uh, as a refugee, you, it's because of the, the proximity of everybody in this small house, 
every conversation that is had, you are always part of it. Even if you're not, uh, uh, even if they're not talking to you, you're just listening in. So you always know what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's like incredibly major decision or sensitive topics. It's all in the open. Right. Uh, so I knew that uh, they were because my sister had immigrated to the U.S. in the uh, 90, 1996. And then she was trying to get my parents and she was able to get my parents in 2006. So it took her about 10 years. Wow. And how uh, did she immigrate? Uh, she won a lottery. Really? <laughs> it's uh, There's a program called the Diversity Visa Lottery. So you basically put your name in a hat. And if your name comes up, you got a visa to the U.S., immigrant visa to the U.S. Wow. And that's like a golden ticket. It's a golden ticket. So she got that and she came with her husband and family to the U.S. And then in 2000, she, when you first come, you're just an immigrant. And then about three, four, five years later, you get your green card. And then another five years later, you get your uh, citizenship. So when you become a citizen, then you can bring the rest of your family over. Got it. So that's when, um, and by family, you can bring your parents, <coughs> not your siblings or uh, older siblings. You can only bring your parents. So my, mo- my my sister was able to bring my parents. She wasn't able to bring us. And then my parents came and it took them about four years to bring their minor kids. Um, so, so we came and uh, joined my parents in 2011. I mean, and what is your perception of this place that you're seeing movies from? You're sister's going to your parents are going to like what is your perception of the united states at that time when you're just a young kid yeah it's so funny that every every place i go to i have the full experience so i come to uh, i come to the u.s and uh, of all places end up in omaha nebraska (laughs) and it's like yeehaw uh, yeah exactly (laughs) uh and it's it's just so dark uh i come and um and how I old were you? In how, how old were you? When you I'm came over? 17. Okay. So I'm 17. I enroll in high school, uh, sort of halfway through the semester, as a junior, and then um, it's I go to school for about two months. And how do you feel when you're on the airplane? Like you're sitting there. You got first your... time on a plane. You, really? Uh, wow. First time on a plane. Uh, it, it, it's just so. Uh, we're so excited because finally we can go to a place where. We're not illegal. We're not just there and uh, kind of fearing every day what what is going to happen to us. So, so for the first time, I, I'm I'm feeling really good, and of course, everybody makes America this like uh, amazing, uh, beautiful place. Like all you see is uh, Los Angeles, New York, and all the big big cities but then you uh, you end up in Omaha Nebraska and especially in the winter and you you, you see it's all white the entire uh, the entire state is white so you, so I start school uh, go for winter breaks come back from winter break and first day back from winter break one of the kids shoots the principal what so full American experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I'm like, we come from this war-torn country to America. <laughs> like, finally, I'm and, safe. Yeah. <laughs> no more weapons. First day back to school, uh, the kid shoots the principal and the vice, uh, vice principal. And the vice principal dies and the principal is in hospital. And the school is on lockdown. And then each one of us 
is escorted by SWAT team out of our classrooms. And my parents are waiting for us across the street in a church. Oh my God. So my dad works in the, in this uh, company uh, for, it's a meat packaging uh, company, Tyson Foods. And he sees this on the news and he's like, he goes home, gets my mom and comes in outside the school. All the parents were waiting across the street in the church. So it was that was my first experience of america it's why so did this bizarre. kid why did he shoot everyone why did he shoot the principal they, they had some dispute or? yeah some some the the he was uh suspended from school and then he was pissed off he went home grabbed his dad's gun and came and shot the principal and vice principal what the fuck yeah so fast forward i graduate from high school well first i'm curious how yeah. was high school what did, like after that obviously that's a crazy way to start but like yeah. you have a whole year and a half to graduate yeah about a year and a half to graduate and how are you treated when you get there are, do you feel like you're fitting in are, are you there with your sister also yes my twin sister were both in the same grade it's a mixed bag mm -hmm. uh, it, it's um some experiences are really good incredible teachers uh they all love me i'm sort of a teacher's pet um, so they all love me and I'm, I'm getting along. Uh, and so in South Asian cultures, you, you do, you really respect your elders and your teachers. They're like, yeah, you would never shoot them. Yeah, That's a... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's never, you don't do that. You, you, you treat them like your parents. It's extremely rude to shoot yeah, your teacher. It's yeah. just, you know, I don't know how, how dare. <laughs> so I, I had an, exp an incredible experience in, in high school. There was one off like. Somebody wrote on the board that Safi is a terrorist. Ooh. Uh, so, so there's that those one-off experiences, but that that's just. And what year is this? Roughly the year like in high school uh, in 2012, Nebraska. 2012, 11, 12. Okay. Um, yeah, 2011. Uh, I graduated in 2012, so 11 through 12. And how was your sister's experience? Was it similar to yours? Um, so I was more uh, Americanized and fitting in better than they were you're a chameleon yeah exactly so i was fitting in and i was you know making friends and uh, teachers were liking me they were not as much they they were more still kind of traditional reserved uh and uh i mean they were doing incredibly as uh, their grades and progress goes but they were still struggling to uh kind of get used to the culture and socially acclimate yeah did you play any sports or get involved in like extracurricular things it, there wasn't. The school? Uh, I was a nerd, so <laughs> I was in the chess club. I was in science club, chemistry oh, cool. club. Are you, are you good at chess? Uh, I'm okay at chess. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay at chess. So I was in the chess club. I was in science club. And did chemistry. you feel a sense? I know a lot of immigrants obviously will feel a sense of pressure where they're like, "Okay, I'm here. I have this opportunity. I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to go hard on my studies and my whatever, and I'm going to be a great student for that reason because I have this great opportunity." Did you feel that same sense of responsibility? Absolutely. Okay. I had to do everything. I took every opportunity. I took all AP classes. Uh, I worked my butt off. I had a job. Uh, and I was, I remember I was in um, a regular U.S. history class. And the teacher saw me and he's like, she's like, Savi, what are you doing in this class? This is way below your level. And she went to the counselor and she basically told the counselor that I knew way more uh, to be in a regular U.S. history class, and she put me in an AP U.S. history class. Oh, cool. So, and, I mean, I had learned some U.S. history, but not a lot, and AP U.S. history was tough. Yeah. Uh, but that was the 
the toughest class I had. Oh wow! Uh, because I I I learned English from Hollywood, so I kind of wrote like that as well and read like that as well. Ah,、uh, funny. So it's not I didn't like learn to read and write. So I was sort of doing the same thing, but then I had phenomenal teachers. They they worked really hard, and uh, uh, just a side note,、uh, Dr. Biden was my English teacher in college. So、oh, <laughs> some a, a lot of credit goes to her、uh, in in some of my writings.、Um, so oh, that's wild.、Uh, and did you feel like your school in Pakistan? Like prepared you for this American high school, or did you? Was it your own personal studies that got you to the point where you were able to acclimate and, and excel in the school? It was a long journey. Yeah, it was a really long journey. I had to do a lot of、uh, learning, and I continue to do. Like it's, it, it just happens. I、uh, kind of sometimes mix V's and W's, <laughs> so I, I, I don't say,、uh, I instead of V's I say W's. And then instead of W's, I say V's.、Uh, so I have to catch myself every time, and、uh, my girlfriend makes fun of me for、oh, that、funny. all the time. And then I tell her I speak six languages. So <laughs> yeah, boom! It's kind of like a, take that a sick burn. Yeah.、Uh, but but I I still catch myself,、uh, and and that's multi you know multilinguals. They always have to、um, continue to to work on their languages because it, it's just so much vocabulary、mm-hmm. that. You know, I was about to say vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> vocabulary. So you go through this awesome transformation.、Yeah. So you go from this refugee camp、right. in Pakistan, come to America, acclimate really well, get fit in. You're in all these clubs, academically performing really well. You're about to graduate. What is your mindset when you're graduating? Like, what are you thinking? Oh, I'm going to do this. Is the pilot dream still on the table? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. So I I got into really good schools.、I、got into U Chicago and I got into MIT. Oh really?、Um, yeah, I got into really, really good schools.、Um, and what was that attributed? Did you just like kill the SAT? Like, obviously you're you're brilliant, but was、yeah. it grades? Was it SAT? Was it、uh, your former refugee status that helped the yeah, story? Yeah, honestly, it was uh, a, a, a mixture of everything. It's if you have a platform and a story,、uh, if you use it the right way, you'll get into a lot of places. So it was a little bit of、uh, both. So I had, you know. I had the options to choose from、um, any school I wanted to go to. Wow!、Uh, and and I had I didn't take any regular、uh, high school classes、uh, my senior year. All my classes were AP, AP Physics, Chemistry,、uh, Calculus, and you know AP US History. So all these classes really excelled me.、Um, and then I I did really well on the、uh, ACTs. But I think. What helped me the most was also using my story and using my platform,、um, wisely. Right. Wisely. Wisely. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. So,、yeah. what school did you end up picking?、Uh, I, I didn't go to school. I come on, yeah.、Sophie. This is the whole point, dude. You come <laughs>、yeah. here, you get all these offers. You go to MIT.、Uh, so, I, I I come here and I see, and I. Almost always, I put other people ahead of me, and I see my parents, and they're struggling,、uh, and they have sacrificed everything、uh, for us, and I decide to help them. So I take a job, and the job takes me back to Afghanistan with the U.S. Special Operations. So、Whoa. and and supporting my sisters through school. So I go back to Afghanistan. Uh, working with、uh, JSOC, 
as a cultural is, advisor and linguist. What is JSOC? Uh, Joint Special Operations Command. Got it. So it's like your Navy SEALs and uh, CAG and uh, Rangers. And how do you get connected with that in the first place? So I wanted to, uh, I want like the pilot dream was still on board and I was thinking going into the Air Force. And then I meet the recruiter and the recruiter is like, you speak six languages. Um, I want you to talk to this other guy. And so I talk to this other guy. He gives me uh, tests and I take the tests and I ace four languages. Uh, four languages that are critical. Like they are like, they really, really need those. And I was uniquely qualified because these small teams, these small, small special operations teams that are some of the most elite uh, U.S. military, they want to have people that if you embed with them, they don't want to have four additional people because they're so small and they want to be small like that. They don't want to have four additional people just for languages while they could just have one. Mm. It saves room on helicopters. It saves room on when they go far for missions. It saves room on... And also, like, there's not four people um, uh, privy to their secrets. Uh, so, so potentially millions of dollars in the health yeah. of the mission is dependent on whether it's one person or five people. Exactly. So I ace all these languages. Um, so uh, I ace four languages in addition to English. So five languages that they can use me for. So I graduate on uh, May 24th. I turn 18 on May 25th. I get my secret clearance on uh, May 26th Wow! and I get my clearance and I don't know anything at this point. I just took tests and they're like, okay, you're going to North Carolina. So and how do you feel? Are you excited on, you know, on the one hand, you've been looking at this country through movies your whole life. And now all of a sudden you're working with the government and like a really valuable asset and they probably make you feel special. How do you yeah. feel on the inside? What's up guys? We're going to take a break really quick because I need to tell you how you can access every single show available on netflix here's the problem different netflixes in different countries have different shows that's right i like to watch brooklyn 99 it's one of my favorite shows but i can't watch it on netflix in the united states i gotta go to a different streaming service i gotta get like 10 different streaming services just to watch the shows that i want but i can use expressvpn servers trick netflix into thinking that i'm actually watching from a different country and then I can access Brooklyn Nine-Nine easy. ExpressVPN is what I use when I'm trying to watch different shows from around the world and browse the internet securely. Here's the thing, in the United States, they're able to sell your data, but that's not the case everywhere. So when I go through ExpressVPN servers, all of my browsing is secure, and it's actually a safer way to use the internet. ExpressVPN has servers in 94 countries, and you can change your location to any one of those countries in the world. Number one rated by CNET, The Verge, all the tech websites, they are legit, and they're the one that we're rocking with. If you want to find out how you can get three months of ExpressVPN for free, that's right, free, zero dollars, three months, go to expressvpn.com gagnon. That's right, expressvpn.com slash G-A-G-N-O-N, or click the link in the description below. It's the VPN that I use. It's the VPN that you should use. Now let's get back to the show. You know, if you've seen one of those, you know, movies about uh, secret agents where they don't tell you, and they, they just come and they tell you what you need to know at the time. So initially when I met them, they're like, okay, take this test. I take the test. They don't tell me what's going to happen after the test. So I take the test. Then they're like, okay, you did well on the test. Now you're gonna fill these forms so you can get your clearance. And I fill the forms, it's like 40 pages long form that you basically, basically pick your entire 
life, whatever, everything, where everywhere you've been. Uh, I feel that, and they don't tell you what's going to happen next. And then they're like, okay, well, you're going to North Carolina. They don't tell you what's going to happen in North Carolina. You go to North Carolina, uh, you, they, uh, y- y- you end up in this base in the middle of nowhere. Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg. Um, that's where uh, JSOC headquarters is. So I end up there. And even then, I I don't know what I'm doing. Right, this is like your third time on an airplane now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I go there and they don't tell you. You just take a bunch of interviews, a bunch of tests, a bunch of physical tests. Uh, they, they fit test you. Uh, and then they're like, okay, you're going to Afghanistan. And they don't tell you what you're doing in Afghanistan. So they put you on a plane. You end up in Afghanistan. You are in Bagram. What, what kind of plane do they put you on? Is it a regular airplane? So, Is it a military plane? So until uh, so you, they put you on a regular uh, commercial plane uh, until Dubai. And then from Dubai, you take uh, a contracted, defense contracted plane to the base. So you end up on Bagram. And then on what, Bagram, what are you wearing? What do you pack with you? They, they give you all of your gear. Okay. You get everything. Okay. So you get all your military gear. Um, and then you you go to Bagram, and there you end up on a small compound. And you don't even know what it is. But later you find out it's the most secretive organizations in the United States military. And so how do you feel? You're 18 years old. You've been in America for a year and a half. Yeah. And all of a sudden now you're back in Afghanistan. Really, you haven't even been in Afghanistan that much. So now you're in this country that you're ethnically a part of, but you haven't even really lived in. Yeah. How do you feel? Uh, it's it's a surreal feeling. But again, all I'm doing is fitting in. I'm like, I go everywhere. I'm like, yeah, I've done this before. This is this is what I've been born to do. Like, I've always done this. On the outside, but on, on the, the inside, how do yeah, you feel? Yeah, on the inside, it's like so nervous. Oh, really? It's like, um, I, you know, a lot of the times it's, uh, when when you grow up in a refugee camp, when you deal with so much shit, then you just the feelings just kind of disappear. It's like you shove it down, hmm. you shove it down so deep that it's just like not there. Being uncomfortable is normal for you. It, absolutely, like it's, I'm I'm always uncomfortable, and if if I'm comfortable, it's something's wrong. That's when you're actually uncomfortable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're on a beach drinking mai tais, you're like, oh, oh shit, something's bad. <laughs> something's bad. And just to back up, your parents, you you had mentioned that they were struggling. Yeah. So what? How was their experience transitioning to America? Because by the time you got there, they had already been there for a few years. How were they fitting into Nebraska? Yeah, so they don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to. They're at this point. They're seventy. And, and your they, dad's still working. My dad is still working. And they have to leave everything that they have known for their entire life and start all over again. Everything. And, and that's that's scary. Especially at that age. It's, it's impossible for many people. Yeah. And I mean, my parents even able to, to do that much is kind of extraordinary. You just, you know, you, you take a 70-year-old American... And you take everything from them, like just the clothes on their back, and you take them and put them in the middle of uh, nowhere, and you uh, and and you uh, see them how they do, like raise a family. Yeah, they'll get angry, That's, they'll get jaded, they'll yeah, get it's depressed. It's like a reality reality show almost, right? They're like yeah. you just throw them <laughs> in the middle of, but it's not for a month; it's for a lifetime. Right. So you kind of have to forget from where, where you come from. you, Because y- you never know whether you're 
ever gonna go back mm. my dad has never been back since he's here so it, it's it's just kind of like it's you you are eternally attached to that country but due to circumstances you can never go back and you're saying he's attached to afghanistan yeah did he like pakistan oh i hate it hate it oh really continues to hate it it's the discrimination that happens in pakistan against refugees is just unimaginable like it's just it's they 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 use derogatory words they treat you like a second class citizen right they, you have no rights you have no rights you have no access to 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 uh health you have no access to education you have no access to food yeah. all the food that comes from is unhcr trucks and if unhcr trucks don't show up you don't have food yeah and i guess for a kid maybe it's a little bit easier because you're malleable you don't know exactly. anything you're just kind of this is what life is but when you're a grown man trying to raise and support your family it must be very emasculating to live in a house and then all of a sudden some guy goes ah, i'm doubling the rent yeah, and, and you go the like the I pride, have nothing. Yeah, Ugh. and the pride that's hurt in the process. Um, I remember so many people like stole money from my dad just because, and also like you get a new you you get a house, you pay a deposit, security deposit, and then they tell you, well, you have to pay the rent in advance. Um, so you have to pay the rent in advance, and you pay security, and then when a month later they tell you that the rent is double. Now, if you leave, you don't get your deposit back. Yeah. So. Oh my. Gosh. Yeah, I remember so many people stole so much money from my dad and um, my family, and just got away with it. Wow. And then not only did he have to restart his life when he goes to Pakistan and goes to the refugee camp, and that's not great. You're still, you know, there's prejudice, everything like that. Then, in your older age, you go to Nebraska, which now you're a citizen, you're legal, or not a citizen, but you're legal. Or at that point, they were citizens, right? Yeah, so my my parents became well. They were in when they initially came. They were permanent residents, right. which is pretty much you are you're legal right. and you can do everything. But then they became citizens in two thousand twelve. So it's amazing. But then at the same time, you're still restarting. There's probably not really any Afghans. You in still Omaha. don't know English. You, you still can't communicate. Right. With so everybody. you're isolated. You can only talk to your yeah. wife and your kids. And if you had an amazing job in Afghanistan or Pakistan, you come to America and you have to do, you know, food packing or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's emasculating again. It's another level of, of yeah. frustration. And I mean, my dad really prides himself in on working really hard mm -hmm. and providing for his family. And he continues to work. He's 76 years old and wow. he continues to work. Badass. Um, yeah. And, and he, he really loves working because he's saying that the day he stops working, it's basically like... Uh, he, uh, it, it's, it's sort of a way of, uh, staying young, uh, for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, but my mom is, uh, struggling with a lot of health problems. Um, she just had a heart attack and then, uh, she, she had really bad knees. So, and, and she's struggling going to work every day. And I, I basically told her, I was like, you're going to quit your job and I'm going to go work and support you guys. Got it. And, and it was now, uh, in retrospect, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, because so I end up uh, I, I go to Bagram and then from Bagram uh, and they put me on another military plane to this uh, outpost in the middle of nowhere and I go there and I am there for a month getting trained on uh, on the field and then a month later I find myself with a task force and basically we're doing nighttime operations. Wow. So 
I'm going on these night raids where like some of the most secretive missions in the world. Like I was part of one of the most elite uh, U.S. Special Operations uh, Task Force. And uh, like still to this day, they are uh, they're not known that they exist. So I'm part of this team and I'm only 18. And the next youngest person on the team is 30. Wow. So there is this gap, but they see, they look at, and, and again, I'm, I'm a chameleon. I kind of blend in. I grow my beard. I, I grow my hair and I like just blend in. And they see, they look at my potential that I can switch between languages like that and they can take me everywhere. Right. They, before I got there, they had five uh, linguists. When I got there, they only needed me. So they save. So one of those Black Hawk helicopters, you can only fit six people on each helicopter. And then the team consisted of about 30 guys. And so so they saved one helicopter because yeah. of me. And the fuel and the risk exactly. and all of that. I couldn't imagine how valuable it is. Exactly. So uh, they get me and, you know, and, and this team is sort of self-sufficient because so they have the they have radio guys they have pjs they have uh medics they have um uh they have a uh pa so all of these guys they're the and then you they so the 20 guys are are the shooters they're, they're the uh those are basically the infantry guys and then the other 10 are specialists in different fields like interrogation intel collection uh, PJs, uh, medics, uh, PAs, uh, even surgeons, and uh, and pilots, and then these twenty guys. So when they can, they usually take about four helicopters to go on a mission. Now, if you can save one helicopter to go out on a mission over like thousands of mission, you're saving thousand trips yeah. of one entire helicopter. So I'm like, and I'm the most valuable member of the team because the 20 guys who are shooting anybody can replace them with like somebody who's good at a good right. infantry there's a lot of people are good at shooting yeah a lot of people are good infantry soldiers there's very few people that yeah. speak those specific five languages yeah so i become one of the most valuable uh part of this team and they take me in as and all these guys have kids that are as old as me right yeah so they look at me as their kid but also like uh i am and i'm always the second person on target uh, and that's because I'm right behind the team lead because as soon as he breaches the door, I have to speak to the people. Uh, so I have to tell them to raise their hand, like hold their hands, show their hands, drop their weapons. Do you have like a weapon that. also? Yes. I, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But it's like, just like, uh, but I got like trained on the field and everything. So, um, so I go there uh, and... I became really, really good at it. What was that first raid like? What what happened? Um, I had never used uh, night vision goggles before, <laughs> and they just fit me. Uh, the like the before the mission, and I put on the night go night vision goggles, and so when you're on a helicopter, the lights are still on in a helicopter, and when you are in a ready kit room, still have the lights on. But then we get off the helicopter, and it's pitch black and you bring the knots down and you can see like it's all green and it's just um out of this world experience like you can see everything wow and 
it's quiet. It's like pin drop, quiet. And it's this, op- we landed in a, a field and it's open all. And it's the, the, the fields were freshly watered. So we landed in like mud and then you are like walking in mud, like pulling your, your, your feet and you're, you're wearing, you easily wear an additional 70 to 80 pounds, body armor, kit, everything else. So you're walking and it's just, uh, I was really skinny. I, I weighed about 130 pounds at the time. And so one of the things that the team leader told me, he's like, you know, just you come back from mission uh, you just debrief everybody and then you go to the gym with us and you work out with us, you, um, uh, you eat with us, you drink with us and you're part of the team. And so I started hitting the gym and I gained 40 pounds uh, of just, just muscle and I'm like shredded and wow. just best shape of my life and do you feel connected to the other guys in your unit like oh absolutely this is like you feel like these are is that the closest we're all living together and it's just uh one like big family up until that point is that the closest that you have felt with other people in that way yeah absolutely because i had never lived with other people or had the time to actually spend time with other people to go go to movies or other than your family of course yeah exactly my family that that's the only people i felt closest to so and uh initially i'm just like basically like just translating things but they start giving me like more uh responsibilities uh they train me with other things they uh they start training me with interrogation and intel so on target i go and as soon as the target is secure the first thing i do is start asking questions from all the guys wow and it's uh, from sometimes that meant uh, getting more people, saving the mission, uh, getting real-time information that could be used on target for different things. For example, where are the weapons? Or if we were looking for a specific guy and he wasn't there, where is this guy? And trying different methods to kind of find out because um, you just you just have to learn how to get information from them. And then later down the road, did some, you know, undercover missions and uh, being on those missions. And then um, I was route planning for them and just which routes we were supposed to take. And then we go to Kabul and in Kabul, I'm like planning all of these missions for them and uh, recruiting people and um, kind of running sources and uh, gathering information about uh, enemy networks. And is this your first time in Kabul? first time in Kabul. Wow. So I had never been before. Um, I was in, I was born in Pakistan. Right. So what is the, the scariest moment that you had while you're, you know, 18 working with these guys? Like what, what are the things that are happening that you remember now still where you're like, wow, that was, that could have gone really bad. Oh, almost getting shot. Like, cause so we, we went on a mission, uh, and, um, we, we kind of like, uh, we landed on the target and the target is this guy uh, trying to escape on a motorcycle with another guy on the back of the motorcycle and they're both running and we landed on the highway the helicopters and we surrounded him like an L shape and I'm so the the, the rule 
at the time that we had to ab abide by was that we had to ask him to show his hands. We couldn't shoot him until he shot at us. So that was sort of the the Geneva Convention rules that we had to abide by because if somebody's not shooting at you and you, if you can't see a weapon on them, yeah, you can't just you can't go and shoot, shoot them. People. Or even if they have a weapon, you have to ask them to drop their weapon. Right. So he's covering. He's covered in a shawl, and he gets off. We we land. He gets off the motorcycle, and I'm asking him to. So I ask him, "Let me see your hand." And we're like ten meters apart, and he can see me. I can see him, uh, and I'm like. Let me see your hands. And he's like, not budging. And I tell him again, let me see your hands. And what was interesting in this mission as well is we usually did nighttime operations. We did all our missions at nighttime. This one was during the day because he was trying to escape. So we got the, we got a, uh, we got a hint, we got a report from somebody that this top level Taliban commander was in uh, this village and he was leaving. We were planning on going to get him at night, but he was gonna leave and go back to Pakistan. So we basically like just go and he leaves and we are following him on with a helicopter. He's on a motorcycle during the day. And I ask him once, it's like, let me see your hands. And he doesn't budge. I ask him again, let me see your hands. And I'm almost about to ask him for the third time is when it's like he just sprays with his AK-47 under his shawl and one of my teammates just grabs me by the my body armor and like ducks me down because I was standing and we we duck and then I look up and he's gone. What? Yeah. So, um... There were other other similar times. Whatever where, happened to him? Did you catch him? Oh, he's gone by that. I mean, he was oh. like just completely obliterated. He's gone. <laughs> yeah. I understand. This is more this is military speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I need a translator for military. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, he's it, it's these guys are like they can shoot with one hand from yeah. 300 meters in the middle of the ice. <laughs> so, uh, so the second he starts shooting at you guys, you're yeah, able to to he compromise. Was, he was gone. Nobody got hurt. Wow. Um, and I'm curious at this point, what is your perception of the Taliban? So like, did your parents talk about the Taliban growing up? Like when you were a kid growing up in Pakistan on the refugee camp, what did you, what, what did you think of this group? So my family was always moderate, modern, um, educated. Most of them lived in foreign countries in Western countries, America. And we were always against any kind of violence and against the Taliban because what they were doing uh, and, and other terrorists, what they were doing is killing innocent people. Uh, there, the war was not fair. They were not targeting military. They were not going out there and on the open field fighting against a military. They were going and bombing schools. They were bombing hospitals. They were bombing um, mosques and uh, places of worship. And they were, uh, they weren't going and you know, fighting in the open field against the military or, um, so that was incredibly, uh, clear to us that they were not, uh, the right people. Got and again, it was being in that place was sort of out of necessity, but also 
I, I learned so many valuable lessons from those people. They were so, so, uh, so such a diverse group of people as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it was like, cause, cause everybody was recruited because they were good. Everybody was recruited because they were good at something. Right. You were dealing with A-team guys. Yeah. So this so, is hand-selected from across a broad yeah. group. Were there other people in your similar situation in your unit, like former refugees or Afghans that were displaced? No, I was... Because so, all of the other guys that were working with them, some of them were local. Mm. So these were the local interpreters. And then when I got there, they won because for for sensitivity of a lot of the missions that we were doing and I had clearance. So I was able to basically become part of the team. Everyone else that had been with them before, it was sort of like when they needed them, they would just call them and grab them and take them. And then basically like they would come back and, you know, get rid of them, release them. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't part of the team or uh, work. So... But I became part of the team, and for the next four years, I stayed with them and did was part of thousands of thousands of very uh, sometimes really boring missions, but sometimes really interesting missions. Was that all four years, all in one deployment? You stayed there for four years straight, or did you come back to the U.S.? Sort of. Uh, I only came on leave for a month, okay. and then but but I stayed there for the entire time wow. for all four years. And what was the most like rewarding or satisfying mission that, that you did in that four year run? Was there something that you did that you were like, wow, I'm really proud of this specifically. The stakes of this were really high. Yes. So <clears throat> this one specific mission that, um, you know, it's still, and I had a huge part in it was, and I actually did it with the Australian SAS. Um, so what happened was this guard in uh, Uruzgan, uh, uh, southern Afghanistan had killed Australian uh, soldiers. He was a guard for the Australians and then he turned on the Australians and basically shot his counterparts. Wow. And when he shot them, he ran away and went to Pakistan. So he went to Pakistan and two years later, he shows up in our AO, the area of operations, and we are there and uh, we get the information uh, from our sources on the ground uh, it's we are in northern Afghanistan. The Australian SAS is in southern Afghanistan. So we call the Australian guys and we're like, hey, uh, you know, this guy, he's uh, he's out here. And they send uh, a team. They send their own Australian SAS team. Uh, it's about seven, eight guys. And they uh, embed with our team. Uh, so we go on this mission to this house and uh, we surround this house. I go in. Uh, with the team member, I uh, start asking questions from all the homeowners. It's like, we're looking for this guy. Do you guys know anything about this guy? And everybody's like, no, there's, we don't know. We don't know where he is. Uh, it's just, they're confused. They're like, we don't know who this guy is. Nobody it, knows. Is the guy an Afghan or is he Australian? He's Afghan. Okay. He's Afghan, but they had hired him to be a guard at their fob. Got it. And then he just turned in, you know. Uh, shot those guys so I'm asking these guys it's where is he uh, nobody's you know nobody knows him actually so I have to like kind of improvise and do things differently so I go start talking to the children and I'm like hey you know um, oftentimes I would have you know toys or candy or something I'll give it to the kids to just bribe them a little bit <laughs> so uh, I'm asking them I was like do you guys know of anybody who has recently you know come from a foreign country somewhere they're like 
uh, one kid is like, oh, yeah, the kid, the guy in that house, he just came from Pakistan with, you know, um, he only has like an older dad and a young sister and there's no one else in the house. He just came from Pakistan. And that's when I was like, I tell the team, I was like, um, and whenever we found the, I was like, jackpot is in that house over there. And I asked the kid is like, show me. So the kid shows me where the house is. So we go around the house. And at this time, it's kind of because the helicopters came in. Uh, it took a little bit of time. So some of the houses had already woken up and that guy had already woken up. So it wasn't the, the element of surprise was gone at this point. Right. So we go in. Um, something we call CQB is when you go from room to room and clear each room. So we go into this house. I call everybody to come out of the house. Uh, nobody does. So now what we have to do is clear each room one by one. So we clear the first room, second room. We go into the third room and there's this guy on his knees and he's holding his hands. Uh, he, he has his hands in the back. And so I yell at him and like, show me your hands. Show me your, he, again, I say the second time, show me your hands. And he like shows his hands and just like Hollywood movies, he has a grenade in his hands. He takes out the pin from the grenade and I'm like landslide. So whenever there's like going to be an explosion or something, that's our kind of cue for everybody to kind of like duck, cover, run, whatever. So I'm just like landslide, landslide, landslide. And everybody just uh, covers for and like runs for their life. Uh, and the grenade explodes and luckily nobody got hurt but he dies and um he catches on fire and he like basically burned whoa uh and for whatever reason it's like he completely like um the entire place caught on fire uh and then so there's a lot of funny things that happen on missions as well. So <laughs> I wouldn't describe that's how you're gonna pivot. Yeah, but it was story. the the funny thing that happened was uh, the dog handler because we have to send the dog now to see if there's any explosives. Okay. So we send the dog, and the dog goes, and he comes back with a guy's dick in his mouth. What? So so I'm I'm just like, what the fuck? This dog is uh, <laughs> insane. So. Later, I asked the, the dog, I was like, why did he grab his dick? He's like, well, the dogs are trained that anything that moves, they grab onto. So he's like, his dick might have been moving at the what time, the twitching or something. Fuck? And he like just ripped off his dick and came back with he his dick. Got a bone. That is yeah. crazy. Yeah. So. And how did the Australian guys feel about the mission? Like, obviously. They were so grateful to me. Like later when we went back to, uh, well, cause usually our missions lasted only like two hours to mm -hmm. two maximum two hours. It's like, uh, go in, get the target and come back. So we came back, we we're in the chow hall, uh, eating and they all came in, like thanked me Yeah, because you know, I, I was able to find the guy on target wow. and that was my value to the team because a lot of the times if we went to the wrong target the only way we could find what the right target was to talk to the people right so not only are you translating you're also doing some investigation and do you feel like they implicitly trust you more because you are ethnically afghan like you're not some blue blue-eyed you know australian guy being like oi where's our mate we got to find someone yeah. like do you think they see you and they go oh we we can trust you you speak our language you look like us yeah and i mean it was 
it was kind of you ha you have to relate to these people and you just because they're scared as well like somebody came in the middle of the night and dragged you out of your house and was asking you questions you would just be like the fuck yeah, it's like it's some of these people were dazed yeah like it was just absolutely insane and you're asking them questions um so you you just have to be um very empathetic and understand because what i took my job as is not only because i was helping um our military but i was i was also trying to bridge the gap and build trust and in the process save lives mm -hmm. because if, if these soldiers go out there and they're angry and scared and just dragging these people that they can't speak to can't relate to uh are not um rel related to them or anything could go wrong mm -hmm. but when i'm in the middle i go and i'm like okay let me talk to them like a lot of the times uh one of the things that i was doing as well is kind of going out there and building trust but at the same time um kind of giving the people some relief as well because uh on that side they also felt relieved when they saw somebody who could communicate uh between them and the the white people <laughs> yeah, yeah of course and um, did you ever feel like uh guilt at all during this process that like you're meeting people and they don't want this war to be happening like you're empathizing and you're seeing the humanity in them in a different way i think a lot of times like you know a yeah. white english-speaking infantry person won't have the same emotional connection to yeah. some of these people not necessarily the bad guys but some of the people that are innocent bystanders like these kids that you're talking to yeah do you deal with the emotional burden of those conversations also and how did you cope with that yeah absolutely it's a lot of the times you go there and you are also because when the the family comes out they they look like you they're brown they're, mm -hmm. they're same ethnicity same uh they speak the same language uh sometimes it's women sometimes it's children sometimes it's older women that look like your mom mm -hmm. some some women look like your sister so it's it's just like that but you have to justify it some way mm -hmm. and for me to be bringing all these people out of their safety of their homes was for a reason. And the reason was so that we don't have to, they don't have to be uh, sacrificed in the crossfire. I'm saving these people's lives because when I call out and be like, hey, everybody come out of the house, we're not just storming the house and, you know, killing everybody in the in, in, in our path. We are looking for somebody and our information is incredibly uh good we don't act on sources that are uh shady or we don't act on information that's just from a single source we we have to verify it from many different sources we have to we are employing all kinds of technology to make sure that we are going after the right people right uh and when we go there naturally there are going to be women and children in the way so my job is more to protect those people than you know harm all of them and a lot of the times i didn't take a weapon i went uh, open-handed without a weapon 
and went and spoke to them just so that they're not scared of me. Sure. I mean, that is incredibly brave to yeah. go so, walk up to a house without a weapon. Yeah, and just exactly. Like, let's just and, talk. Let's just use our words. Ex- and, and, and that's what I, uh, and the, what, what I'm grateful for to the team is as well, is they treated me like the, like in that field, they treated me, they gave me full authority. They gave me, they treated me like the expert that was there to, to do that part of the job. Mm-hmm. And I had full authority there. And in the process, I saved lives. And, and that that's how I have to justify it. Right. Uh, because those terrorists, they're cowards and they hide behind women, they hide behind children, they hide uh, in homes. So for me to go and basically be able to save those children is means uh, means a lot to to the mission and to myself. That being said, it's not that nobody that was innocent got killed. Like there were innocent people that did get killed, but not as many as it would have if uh, somebody like me was not there. Right. Uh, kind of watching that part. Of course. But you know. There's war is ugly. War is not fair. War is, um, yeah, it's an evil the, thing. Yeah, it's 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 the the most evil that you can you can see because it's just everything is fair and everybody is trying to protect themselves. And if if you don't kill the enemy, the enemy is going to kill you. I've heard people say that. I've heard people say, "Oh, war is hell," and then people yeah. say, "No, war is worse than hell because yeah. in hell there's no innocent people." Mm-hmm. But in war, there's innocent there's people. There's a lot of innocent people. In fact, the innocent people are the ones that are uh, most vulnerable and easy to get in the way of getting killed. Like, um, yeah, we, we've we been to targets where they were just hiding in um, the houses. We went to a target where uh, we started, like, getting... Because a lot of the women cover themselves a lot in that culture, mm-hmm. so we are uh, getting the the children out of the compound, and children, children, woman, woman. Behind the woman, somebody in woman's clothes and covered doesn't quite look right because of the build and body and all of that. The height, it just doesn't look. Right. And stop him and like, what's your name? And they're 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 one of the terrorists trying to, you know, blend in and escape as a as a woman. Wow. So things like that, they they they're cowards. They don't play fair. They uh, they try to uh, shield themselves with children, women, and uh, innocent uh, elderly. So that was basically my job there. So at this point, you do this for four years and then you leave. Yeah, uh, I and come back to the what, U.S. What prompted you to leave? Uh, it was sort of uh, the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team I was working with at the time, it got redeployed to Syria. And I just, I was like, I think it's time yeah. for me to... My job is done. Yeah. So, so you come back to the States. At this point, you're sending money, I guess, back yeah. to your family. And uh, yeah, so I family. paid my parents' house off. I'm, my mom quit her job. My sisters are graduated at the time. That's great. Um, they, they, my sisters finished college. Uh, I come back and I enroll in college. I went to Georgetown and then, you know, just peaceful. 
Uh, I also go into the Navy Reserves uh, as a um, corpsman, which is a medic mm-hmm. uh, in the Navy. So I, I, I'm doing that and just going to school, just living the suburban life. How was that transition? Was it nice or was it kind of anxiety inducing? I know oh, you was... you prefer discomfort. So I wonder going yeah, I from mean, it's... tight camaraderie with your best friends and your family, basically overseas fighting mm-hmm. to then going to a little college in a suburb. You yeah. Know, how does that feel? It, it was very difficult because, you know, you're at the peak of what you're doing. It's like at the top level. It's the highest stakes, the highest, the highest purpose, exactly. a lot of pride. Yeah. And you're working with the best of the best. And now you have to come back and start from zero because yeah. one, you can't tell anybody of what you did uh, and the skills are not transferable. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you have to start from zero. Right. Scratch. And so I uh, applied to college. And I, I got into Georgetown, so I started pre-med. I, one, one thing, because before that I wanted to do engineering, but after this experience I came back and I was like, I want to go into medical, and I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. I wanted to uh, be a field trauma surgeon with the military. Oh, wow. So I wanted to go back into the Navy and just, I saw a lot of guys on the, uh, in the field who were uh, saving valuable lives uh, on the ground, including, like, uh, treating the local population, treating our soldiers that were getting injured. So I wanted to go back and do that. So I, I went to pre-med at Georgetown University. Um, went there for three years, graduated in 2021, uh, got into medical school at University of Nebraska, um, where my family lives still uh, in Omaha. So kind of wanted to be close to my uh, family again. Um, and then... August of 2021, when I'm about to start my classes at University of Nebraska in Omaha, Afghanistan falls. And all of a sudden, all of the people that I had known on the ground that had worked for us, that had provided us with information, with intel, with sources, translators, people that were providing us food, supplying food, everything, our cooks, janitors, guards, they're all, all of their lives are in danger. They all started calling me and I had built a reputation in Afghanistan. They used to call me the shadow governor of Kabul. <laughs> the shadow governor. Yeah. So I knew everybody in the town um, and I knew people all over Afghanistan. I had built these networks and I could easily use all of them to save these people. And... I had a choice between going to school, medical school, that's always been my dream, or helping these people. So once again, I chose to help these people. Right. This is the same choice you had when you're graduating college. Like, oh, do I go to MIT and chill in Boston, go to school, party a little? Yeah. Or do I help my family? Do I help the country? Exactly. So I chose to to help these people. And where were you the day you found out that U.S. troops were withdrawing from Afghanistan? And what was going through your mind? Were you angry? Were you scared? I mean, I was always in favor of withdrawal. Oh, really? Uh, because another 20 years and the results wouldn't have been any different because it's just the war was just not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, um, innocent people's lives were uh, being affected by it. And we just didn't have a goal. We, we just didn't know what we were doing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't going anywhere. And as somebody who is in the military, I didn't want to 
for us to keep sending our troops out there. Right. Uh, there needed to be an. So it was our longest war, and there needed to be an end somehow. It could have been done differently. It could mm -hmm. have been done much better, but it needed to be done. It it wasn't a choice between, oh, if we had stayed another six months or another year, uh, things would have turned out differently. It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have turned. Right. Out. So it's not the decision. It's just the way it was carried out. Exactly. Um. So I was in Arlington, Virginia. My brother was in Kabul at this time. He was back there running a Coca-Cola factory. So I call him three days before the fall. I was like, the fuck are you doing there? I were seeing all over the news that, you know, that place is, things are not looking good. He's like, oh, everything's fine. You know, outside, everything, nothing, nothing's out of the ordinary. And I was like, yeah, you just need to leave. So he got his ticket for like the two days later. Um, and he got on a plane, his plane landed in Dallas, uh, Virginia. I went to pick him up at the airport and I'm like, so did you hear the news? He's like, what news? I was like, Kabul fell, Taliban took over. He's like, what? So he was on a plane. He didn't know that it had happened. Wow. Um, so he came and he also had a major, he, he there were about 600 people working for him. So these 600 people were all um really um smart people so we put about a hundred of those people to work uh to start rallying people start uh, gathering people uh we built uh, our network from uh ground up and started evacuating people um and how are you evacuating people how does how does that work it, it's i haven't i've never talked about this before uh but so what happened at the airport was there, we didn't have military on the ground. State Department was kind of screwed. They had no plan to to exit. The airport got run over by the people. So nobody has a plan what to do. How to clear the airport, how to secure the airport, and how to start evacuating Americans, American assets, embassy employees. And... CIA comes through. The only people who had assets on the ground is the CIA. CIA has 40,000 uh, uh, basically soldiers that they had trained over the last 20 years. And these are locals that work for CIA. They're called uh, zero units. And uh, so some of them are called zero units. And then there's one that's called KPF, the host protective force. So CIA basically goes to the State Department. They're like, we can clear the airport for you. We can secure the airport for you. We can pull security and we can run the airport for you. But when it's all done, the last people that are going to go out are all of these guys. There's 40,000 of them. Wow. So this is not known to anybody. So what happened is the CIA cleared the airport and the airport is the only place that is in control of the Americans on the ground. Well, there's one other place, but people don't know about this. This is a CIA secret location called Eagle Base. So this place is also 
in control of U.S. but the CIA. So what I was doing is collecting people across Kabul and then taking all of these people to a um, pickup location and then these zero units were coming with their trucks, putting all of these people on trucks. They were taking them to Eagle Base. And then from Eagle Base, helicopters were taking them from there to the airport. So airlifting them from Eagle Base to the airport. And you're doing this all remotely? I'm doing all of this remotely, but I have like 100 guys on the ground that are working and doing this. But you're basically commanding to say, hey, yeah. keep everyone safe, keep them away from Taliban-occupied territory. Yeah you know, U.S. base to U.S. base to U.S. base to airport. Yeah. Got it. So just between CIA, State Department, and a little bit of DOD that showed up later, uh, we carried out this mission. And we were able to uh, evacuate thousands of people during that time, a lot of them being U.S. citizens. And you're seeing, I'm sure, on the news, the videos of people desperately hanging onto airplanes as they're taking off. Like, mm -hmm. this level of delusional desperation that is like tragic and heartbreaking to see what is your feeling when you're seeing these videos and what are you thinking yeah so that was the very beginning right that's when the airport was run over by people uh, just right? a free for all just free for all uh and we didn't have enough uh in, enough military on the ground to clear the airport uh apaches were not able to do it because apaches were doing really low flyovers on the runway uh to clear the people off mm. the runway people were just on the runway they were not leaving until the cia came with the zero units and cleared the uh cleared the runway right and even then we had about twenty-five thousand people that had um got onto the airport uh both on the military and the civilian side of the airport and these twenty-five thousand people were now on the airport now we had a choice to either start like kicking these twenty-five thousand people off the airport or uh to clear the airport take them somewhere Mm -hmm. So what the military did was started putting them on planes and getting them out. So they they evacuated about 25,000 people that were that had just ran over the airport. And right. then they didn't come to the US. They were taken to Doha, they were taken to Abu Dhabi, they were taken to uh Germany, they were taken to Kuwait. Um all of these places where we have bases, they were taken there and they all went through vetting and they all were vetted and screened and all that right so got documentation and then went to a refugee camp in one of those countries yeah absolutely wow so between state cia dod we were able to evacuate about 125,000 people wow and you total. played an integral role in getting all of those people evacuated yeah i mean my team uh the the people on the ground we had about a 40 uh 40 guys in our operation center and our operation center was like across the street from the white house wow. uh, on 15th street and uh, I had a team of about 40 here in the U.S., and all of these guys were former Special Forces guys and um, former Intel guys and CIA guys, FBI. So uh, just State all day Department taking guys. calls, getting people organized, and mm -hmm. I mean, that's an insane amount of yeah. coordination. Yeah, it was insane how it all happened. And like I said, you know, I this is what I've always done in life is just see a problem, and I, even if I've never done it before, like, Someday I would, you know, end up in a plane and we won't have a pilot and I'll just be like, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> so it was just like that. I had never before evacuated people out of, of course. another country. And the amount of work that takes 
to get one plane off the ground is incredible. Yeah. So, and this until August 31st is when we are, the, the military is there. We have military planes. We have other chartered planes. It's all happening. But August 31st happens and everybody leaves. And stop. And that's the cutoff. That is the cutoff. Now, that's the cutoff for planes and all, but we still have thousands of people left there, including U.S. citizens. Right. So uh, we're obligated to evacuate them. So it's another set of problem, and I get to work. I start calling people. I start while we were doing the evacuation on the ground, and during that time we had developed a lot of relationships with the Taliban. So start talking to Taliban. Um start trying to kind of you know appeal to what would appeal to them and be like well you guys are the you guys are the government right now you guys are in charge so either you guys can look like north korea and iran and be like somebody who the rest of the world never sees of or you can be legitimate and the first the first thing to legitimacy is to have uh the international community be coming in and out of afghanistan and the way you do that is to fix the airport Wow. So you're telling the Taliban leadership this. Yeah. So I'm telling them that's the first thing to do. So we start talking and I'm like, well, I can help you. I can help you bring planes to Afghanistan. All you have to do is cooperate with us. So through like almost three weeks of talking back and forth, I was able to get the first plane back to Kabul. Wow. And the first plane, October, uh, September 28th, uh, we got the first plane off the ground and with 117 U.S. citizens. And it took us actually for, they came, the, the U.S. citizens, they came to the airport. And while we were arranging a plane, things fell through, didn't happen. And all of those U.S. citizens had to stay on the airport for three days. So they were just living in the airport. In the airport for three days. And we had to provide security, food, shelter, water. There were children, there were women. Yeah, there I mean, were, that is a logistical nightmare. Yeah, it's like from tampons to like uh, diapers to baby formula yeah, to food, all of it. We had to provide all medical of that. care. I'm sure people medical are sick. care exactly. Wow. People with diabetes, we had we had to provide all of it. And the Taliban is cooperating generally to leave the airport as a yeah. safe place. I mean, the airport is like incredibly uh, visible to the entire world. Right. And this is the first plane that's going to take off from Kabul, uh, so it's um, a privately chartered plane. So the, they, they have to, you know, give a good, good, good face to the, to the rest of the So it happens in three days. The plane leaves to uh, Abu Dhabi with 117 U.S. citizens. Great. And mission accomplished. First plane happened. State Department saw this and they're like, can you repeat? <laughs> can you do this again? And what do you think? You're like, and I was like, yeah, of course. So State Department starts paying for uh, the planes chartered planes and all of the expenses on the ground for my team and we start chartering planes wow uh we start evacuating people and we evacuated close to almost like the number if you add up all the numbers until today it's probably about close to ten thousand people and so you're being you're acting as the liaison between the state department in the united states and dc and the head of the taliban basically in kabul yeah and being that intermediary how do you get the trust of the head of the Taliban? They look at you and they're like, this is an American guy. He's yeah. working with them. Why should they believe you? I mean, they need something that I have and they have something that I need. They need 
they they do want to look legitimate they do want to have a relationship with the western world they do want to look like a legitimate government so they see me as somebody who can give them some legitimacy if they keep cooperating they keep doing what we want them to do they you know they think that someday we will see them as a legitimate government right and i'm also like giving them that hope as well i'm like yeah i mean this is how you become a legitimate government if this is the biggest thing you can do is operating an airport and if the operate if the airport is operational you are going to have some people leaving but you're also going to have some people coming back to see you guys to op- observe you guys westerners are going to come mm. uh journalists are going to come photogra- photographers like um documentary producers are going to come like everybody's going to come and see you guys. And they want to see what you've done with the place. Hey guys, we're going to take a break really quick because I got to tell you about my good friends at Morgan and Morgan. Let me paint a picture for you. Okay. This is a thing that happened to me once I was driving down the road, minding my own business. It's a little rainy. Boom. Someone drives into the back of me. My whole back of my car is dented. My neck hurts. It's a nightmare. I trade insurance with them and I go home and I'm like, Ugh, the last thing I want to do is have to get an attorney involved. The guy asked me, he goes, oh, have your attorney reach out to my attorney. I was like, I don't have an attorney. What are you talking about? I don't know who to reach out to. I got to call someone's sketchy website. They got to ask me all these personal questions. I don't know how to deal with it. You know what I could have done? I could have called Morgan and Morgan. This is why Morgan & Morgan's great. You can get an attorney in less than eight clicks. That's right. Submitting an injury claim has never been easier. It's more like using an app than actually calling a lawyer. It's the easiest thing in the world. If you're ever injured, inshallah, I hope you aren't. But if you are injured, accidents happen, you can check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. That's an amazing deal. For more information, go to forthepeople.com slash gagnon. That's correct. Forthepeople.com slash G-A-G-N-O-N or dial pound law. That's right. That's pound 529 from your cell phone. That's for the people, F-O-R, the people.com slash gagnon, G-A-G-N-O-N or dial pound law, pound 529 from your cell phone. Let's get back to the show. And then I go. I went to Kabul. They're like, well, can you come and meet with us in Kabul? I was like, sure. And how do you feel? Are you like, oh, this is a well, setup? I'm, inc- like- I'm incredibly nervous, but you know, whatever. Like, I have to do it. <laughs> and why but do you have to go? To so we were doing this on a phone, right? Like, we haven't had any FaceTime. There's not that to to get it to the next level, to build that more trust, to continue to do that is to actually go and have some FaceTime with them. Uh, and I didn't do it like I wasn't being careless, or I had. You could be the most careful person in the world and something will still go wrong. But I had everything in place security wise. We had, I had bodyguards. I had talked to all of the senior Taliban leadership. We had everything on paper. You're not going as just a guy. You're going as someone with military training, linguistics training, negotiation training. Yeah. All of that. So I go there and I meet with all of the Taliban leadership and they give me like eight bodyguards, like three land cruisers with like, pickup trucks. Oh, the Taliban gave you the security. Yeah, they gave me all of that. And, you know, I am meeting with them. Everything is going really well. How was that first meeting? You walk in the door and what was it like? Um, It was surreal to see like all these guys that for the longest time I was fighting against them. And did you know them as targets and as people? Oh yeah, these are all like really popular guys. Some of these guys had been in Guantanamo for like 10 years. Uh, So they are really, really like uh, notoriously known, well-known Taliban leaders. Um, so you walk in the room and you're like, there's you, I know you, I know you, and you shake their hands and they probably yeah. know you too. Yeah. I mean, they don't exactly know me because I was sort of a mystery. Mm-hmm. I, so I've recently, like after all of that, I became sort of public about a lot of this after my captivity, 
before that, I was sort of a mystery because I was able to get a lot of things done, but people didn't know who I was. Right. It was, there was this mystery to me and they all were trying to figure out who I was. Yeah. Um, that first visit went really well. We got promises from Taliban that we could continue flights. We could continue to evacuate people. They were not going to harm anybody. They were going to give amnesty to all of the people that had fought against them or worked with the U.S. government. So it's all going well. I come back. I go and debrief the State Department about all of that. They're so excited and ecstatic. They're like, first American on the ground bringing us back real intel of the airport and Taliban's like temperature. So, uh, and then, so I do this, but at the same time, I saw the situation on the ground. It was, people didn't have anything to eat. They had lost jobs overnight and they had lost their, um, the way to feed themselves. So I basically am like, I have to go back to fix this. So I come back and then I, I go back in December uh, to take a lot of humanitarian aid and bring more aid and bring kind of awareness to the problem that was on the ground. Um, and everything is going well, everything is fine. But the last day, the day I'm supposed to leave, uh, people from the uh, Directorate of Intelligence just come and they're like, we have to talk to you about something. I was like, Okay, I guess, you know, we have everything uh, official. We have all the permissions from minister level. Um, we're not doing anything illegal, so this shouldn't be any problem. So I speak to them and they're like, oh yeah, everything is fine. You guys are clear, but uh, this is just a regular procedure that we are Im uh, implementing that all foreigners have to register with us at the headquarters. And initially I was like, it doesn't, like, I don't want to like, I don't want to escalate. So I go with them to the headquarters. And there, uh, I mean, a lot of things happen in between, but we end up at the headquarters. And that's when the guy who had interrogated us just disappears. And then there's a bunch of guys with weapons. And we're in this room the whole day. And then at night, they take us to a different location. And they take us to a basement. And then for the next 105 days, I'm in that basement. Um, this basement is the most secure place in all of Afghanistan. It's in the middle of this giant garrison. There's like all of the military of the Taliban is surrounding this place. Um, and we're in the basement of this place. And, and who's with you? Uh, so there were... Um, five other Brits, five Brits, and then my brother. My brother is also with me. Um, and why did your brother go with you when so, you went over there for, from the US? Um, we were doing different things across the world because we had operations going on in Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, in Pakistan, in uh, Afghanistan, in UAE, uh, all over the world. And then different people were doing things and different things. My brother was in Pakistan at the time taking care of people that we had in Pakistan. So he came to meet me in Kabul and sort of like figure some things out because we had to get to the next level. We continued to have, have to get to the next level uh, to elevate things, to do it faster, to do more, um, to have more uh, effect, to have uh, more humanitarian aid, more flights, more people evacuating. So that, for that reason, he, he came to 
Kabul. Wow. Uh, and I was going to leave Kabul and then I, he was going to remain in Kabul to oversee everything. Um, I leave and so I'm in this basement initially for the first five, six days. I'm by myself in a no, single What room. does the basement look like? It's like a dark room. There's one light in the um, that's on 24-7 in the ceiling. Uh, it has like a small window at the very top that can see outside. Uh, and then the rest of the room is underground. Uh, it's a little damp. Um, there's no blankets. Kind of no, cold. Yeah, very cold. It was a middle of winter. Um, there's no heaters, no uh, blankets, no mattresses, nothing. You're just on the floor. Um, then they gave us a blanket. And then I was just using that one blanket to cover and sleep on. Uh, but it's disgusting. It's dirty. Really, really dirty. Everyone in the same room. We were all in separate rooms. We were all kept in separate rooms. Uh, wow. And the room is about eight feet by eight feet. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can basically like kind of, you can stretch and sleep, but can't do much more. Um, and you couldn't even talk to anyone else. You're completely no, alone. Couldn't talk to anyone else. And completely at, what, alone. at what point did you know you were kidnapped? I mean, I think when we they, they put us in that basement, we were basically like, shit, this is bad and this was like a, a a separate group within the taliban that is their directorate of intelligence is there like if you combine cia and fbi together and made one organization that sort of rogue works outside the taliban uh sort of authority and has a grip on all the leadership and has you know dirt on everybody so everybody's scared of them nobody can stand up to them um and so, so, and they do whatever they want. And a lot of the foreigners that are being held are held by them. So there's multiple factions within the Taliban. It's not oh. some type of monolith that mm -hmm. is all operating as some united front. There's no, a they, they rogue faction that's capturing people and there's maybe a public facing faction. Yeah. So the faction that you were speaking with when you were on the phone in DC, is that a different faction? That's a completely different faction. And uh, they were doing their best to get me out of there. But then the the intelligence is like we have information against these guys and we're going to interrogate oh, them. Oh, wow. So some of the Taliban were trying to get you out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of Taliban that are trying to get, get me out. So it was at that time. Um, and then about six, seven days later, the guy who was interrogating us comes back, asks us questions, and he's like, oh, everything is fine. You guys will be released in a couple of days. And then they also put us together. They bring my brother to my room. We're in that room. And then from time to time, other people would come stay with us. Uh, so in this room, sometimes we were two, sometimes three, sometimes four. Um, and then for the rest of the time, we were in that same room. Um, it was just, you know, a lot of the same things that I had learned. I had to apply a lot of that there and kind of befriend a lot of the guards to get help from them. Uh, eventually we had a guard day 17. We had a guard who smuggled the phone for us and, uh, we got the smuggled phone and that was the first time when we called, uh, our family, our family didn't know where we were, if we were alive or dead because nobody was talking to us. And that's, that was the first time when we, um, got information out to our family that we were here and stuck in um still 
you know, alive. Was it scary using the phone? How did you feel using this smuggled phone? I mean, we had that guard kind of watching over us and seeing what was happening. And why did he want to help you? Um, it's kind of a long story, but um, so this new guy comes in and we're like, he's kind of looks like he's really stressed or depressed or whatever you call it. And we're like, hey, buddy, what's going on? Why are you like so? Uh, I mean, we are inside. We're not leaving, but he comes to our room and like we talk to all of them and kind of get a temperature of all of them and see who can be like manipulated. Um, so this guy comes in. We're like, what's going on? He's like, oh, I went home to uh, get married and I asked my commander to give me some money because I need to go get married. And the commander basically said no and then i left but i went home i couldn't get married because i don't have money and i was like oh you need money to get married it's like well you know we have a ngo we help people that's what we do and we'll help you get married and but i was like i could give you the address of my folks outside and you can go ask them for money but they're not going to believe you so what you can do is if i call them myself and tell them to give you money and then you can go pick up the money from them and it's like he's like oh okay so he, we called, I called uh, my guys outside and I was like, hey, uh, this guy is going to come give him this much money and to so he can get married and also uh, give him a phone. So wow. he brought the phone and then uh, used that phone to uh, speak to the outside world. And your first call was to, who did you call? Um, it was also really difficult to actually work that phone in the basement. Right. So what we did, uh, what I did was I called, uh, our guy who was in Kabul and because that was the easiest way to, to, to call him, uh, we had to put the phone all the way up in like by the window to get signal. And, uh, then he had to like connect our guys here in the U S so state department was involved at this point so then this three-way phone call between like my team here in the u.s my girlfriend my brother other team members uh we were all connected and i'm talking to them from this basement of taliban wow and what are you eating this first like um, two weeks while you're in there yeah the food is horrible like there's beans and rice and bread and tea for the morning one meal a day yeah um i mean two ish meals a day but it was just beans and rice the whole time mm -hmm. um but it was also like being there in that basement 24 7 not being able to go anywhere is also like a unique experience to introspect and see everything from a different perspective and what are you thinking about the first few days the first few days are kind of like almost blank like there is no thoughts because i'm in shock uh and all you're also like wondering what is going to happen where you're gonna go what is to become of you all of those questions are incredibly difficult and you're also thinking about your family whether they know you're alive because we had no we had no connection to the outside world we had no communications to the outside world so they don't know uh you don't know if they know 
whether you're alive or dead mm-hmm. or if they know what to do like you're like i'm here how you you're trying to find a way to tell them where you are mm-hmm. so that they can come and uh help you rescue and you know that time when i was there uh a lot of my former teammates that uh guys at work they they were into, they were like kind of thinking about like just doing a hostage rescue you know storming the place but every way they looked at it it was impossible it's just, so fortified so protected it was so fortified there were like thousands of people there uh thousands of taliban fighters there and are so, you considering trying to escape is that even crossing your mind at all yeah and i mean everything right everything is on table at the time um rescue missions are on the table escaping is on the table uh paying off the guards is on the table uh to just let you go but this place is like a fortress yeah and all of the, these guys are like hardened taliban yeah. fighters who just wouldn't budge at any cost and it's not just you escaping you have to escape with your brother too you're not going to leave him behind yeah and i wasn't going to leave the brits behind either like i, I mean they were not associated with me but it just felt like the right thing to do right um so then you know with negotiations my my entire family my my dad my mom uh my other brother and my sister-in-law they all came to kabul oh really yeah and basically my dad went up to the the director of director of intelligence and he stood up to him he's like why are you holding my son director of intelligence for the taliban yeah like why are you holding my son and then my dad basically told him his history who he was and he's like oh why didn't you come earlier and then the director was basically like i'm going to release your kids and right then and there uh, he was scared of my dad really yeah he was really scared of my dad um I mean, my dad wields this kind of power in his community and his tribe, um, the where we are from in Afghanistan. He wields kind of tribal power that could mean uh, very dangerous for the Taliban. So before you released, you call, you get in touch with the outside world on day 17. You're able to bribe the guard. You get a cell phone. You're talking. You're getting a little bit of signal, just peeping yeah. out of the top of the cell. It's you, your brother, a couple of Brits finally able to get in touch with your team people now know where you are yeah what happens from day 17 because you're here for 105 days yeah so my family came to afghanistan day uh 45 and we saw them they came to the the prison um they brought us food and after that they started bringing us food regularly okay so treatment books treatment got better yeah we got books we got food we got blankets we got heaters mattresses all of that and at this point you're starting to feel hopeful yeah very hopeful and i'm talking to the outside world as well and you know everything is coming together like they're making because it has to be planned the plan is coming together and there's a lot of hope any day now you're gonna be any released. day now you are gonna be released day 70 is when my family reached uh sort of the taliban basically the director of intelligence basically told my dad it's like i will release your children as long as you know americans send a plane to pick him up at the airport mm. and day 70 it be the our job shifted from convincing the taliban to release us to convincing the u.s government to send a plane wow so day 70 everybody my entire team in the u.s my girlfriend they all started like bombarding government with like what it, what is it going to be i have a lot of senators know me congress members know me 
people in the government know me, they all start using their influence to uh, make this plan happen. And it is happening. Everything is being planned. Like, it's w the work is in progress. March 23rd, 2021, Taliban are supposed to allow girls to go to school. They double down on that prohibition and basically say they're not going to let girls go to school. And the entire world basically is like, what the fuck? And at this point, like, the State Department was about to send a plane to go come get me. And then they are like kind of tracking back on their on their promises. They're like, well, if we send a plane, it's going to look like we are talking to the Taliban. And it's optically, it's going to look really bad to the rest of the world that we're kind of negotiating or talking or having diplomatic relationships with the Taliban. Because mm. at this point, they've shown their face. They've shown, oh, we're not going to be this Western yeah. exactly. uh, government. So everything that's happening, all of a sudden, it's all scratched. Ugh. So and how do you feel? You had all this hope, all this, all these things were looking up. Yeah, and at this point, I had gone on hunger strikes like multiple times. And what do you mean? Uh, so the basically like when the Taliban the way I was like, I'm not eating this fucking food. So day um, thirty ish, thirty five, we I stopped eating. And I didn't eat for the next 10 days. And then my family came to Afghanistan to basically convince me to eat. And they brought food and they were like, you're getting out. All you need to do is just eat, stay strong. Don't lose your health. Don't waste your health over this. And what are your thoughts on the hunger strike? What is the, the tactic here? Applying pressure. To be released? To be released. Applying pressure. not, And also getting better treatment and better conditions uh, down there in the basement. Not for just myself, but also everybody else. Right. Is anyone else hunger striking with you? Or is it just you? So day four, uh, I was hunger striking. Me and my brother were hunger striking for four days. And then day four, everybody saw that the Taliban kept coming every day and trying to like convince us that they were going to release us. We need to break our hunger strike. And then day four, when they all see that, oh, it's working, they joined us. Wow. It's really funny. Day, uh, day, day eight... Uh, day eight is when the, the Brits were not hunger striking with us at this point. They were just like, no, nah, we're not going to do this because I guess they're not weak sauce. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Brits are kind of weak. Um, so uh, day eight is when these guys, like random guys just come down. They're like, you're going to break your hunger strike. And I was like, no, I'm not. And we got into a, basically a fight. And they like hold me with like nine people and then more people come down and there's like 15 people, like nine holding me. And then the other uh, four like wielding pipes and like just trying to like uh, um, kind of break me. And they, the guy who is the leader of these guys, like they drag me upstairs, like they beat me up and then they drag me upstairs and basically like prison style dragging me with my hands tied behind my back. Um, and beating you with the pipes. Yeah, beating me with the pipes. So I go upstairs, they put me on a chair, and this guy very frustratingly looks at me and he's like, look, you are disrupting the peace in the prison. You are making our lives miserable. Our leadership is like freaked out because if anything happens to you, we have to answer to the Americans. 
this is nothing personal and this is prison there is rules here regulations here you have to eat and i look up to him because he said it's not personal and i look up to him and i was like it wasn't personal before but you made it personal now and i said that and in that moment i could see something breaking inside of him he didn't say a word after that took me back to my cell and i still had my my hands uh tied and just let me left me there like that beaten yeah the next day other people came and like uh untied my hands um brought my brother back to the room um and then sat there and this was about you know day 44ish um for the rest of the time almost you know 60 days i did not see that entire team he was so scared he wouldn't even come downstairs to the basement to see me wow so and he was trying like cuz it was so funny cuz he would sometimes come to the basement to get other prisoners but he would kind of hide so i wouldn't see him he would hide behind like the pillars or something so i wouldn't see him he was afraid that you because you're taking this personally we're going to somehow hurt yourself and then the whole organization is going to have to answer to the US government and that's going to be yeah or a problem or like hurt him or something or <laughs> right you know, i wasn't like, i was unpredictable i made their lives really difficult i made them really difficult i would wake up at 3 in the morning i had this like big metal um uh kind of thermos for for uh tea or water i would get that and i would start banging on the door i would start banging on the door i would wake up all the guards and i'd be like just good morning good morning yeah and how do you know to be difficult like i are, why are you not afraid that your difficulty is going to result in you getting beaten more or getting you know potentially killed i i kind of realized that the taliban were like not going to kill me they weren't going to hurt me or harm me they were they they looked they every foreigner they take hostage or anything they look they they're also afraid it's like it, it's one of the thing is everyone is afraid of america the 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 power that we wield across the world is unmatched like it's nobody can stand up to us like they 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 talk a lot of shit but when it comes to reality they do listen to us and they're not going to do something that would piss america off so at this point i do know that no matter how difficult and how hard i am they're not going to do anything and also at the same time they also realize that america doesn't leave any of their own people behind they know that one day i'm going to get out of there and then i'm going to come back and how they treat me there is going to be wide open to the rest of the world so they're doing their best to show their best face uh but i'm making it really hard for them they're like i'm cussing their leadership i'm cussing their supreme leader and when my dad went to meet with the director of intelligence he's like your son is cussing out our supreme leader and then my dad came he's like oh, don't cuss their supreme leader <laughs> <laughs> what the like, fuck are you doing don't do that yeah, i'm trying to help you and you're out here cussing everyone out um but you're just trying to be a thorn you're just trying yeah, to be obstructionary trying to break them trying to break them as well like they are frustrated they are no one else in that prison is doing that and i'm just like making their life a living hell. oh so the thing to the brits like 
so day eight they beat me up in the morning before they beat me up the british one of the british guy is super like ecstatic he's like safi i'm gonna hunger strike with you as well i'm starting this morning and i was like oh cool mate okay that's nice you are uh in solidarity um what happens so he doesn't uh he doesn't get breakfast and then lunchtime comes around uh and that's when i get right before lunch i get beaten up so i come back from beating up and i call up on him i was like hey hey mate how are you doing did you eat lunch he's like yeah mate and i was like you said you were gonna hunger strike with me he's like bro i'm 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 ready to not eat food but i don't want to be, get beaten up <laughs> so the second he sees you get beaten up, he's like yeah, this whole <laughs> hunger strike thing i'd rather be not, not beaten up me. and fed than rather yeah. be hungry and beaten up yeah so the next day uh some very senior taliban leadership comes and actually the executive secretary for the director of intelligence comes down there and basically like begs us to eat and he brings us everything we asked for what kind of damage did you have from the pipes um i mean it wasn't damage that's permanent but it was like all my my feet they were all uh kind of scarred at the time uh and had bruises all over my body uh but it wasn't anything that was like permanent or like didn't break me right so you were not shaken by that at all no not even a little bit like why <laughs> you eat. just got your ass beat by the taliban like yeah and you're hungry you haven't eaten in three days yeah you're not even mentally yeah i mean you you just the resilience of that is that when you decide to do something you just have to stick to it like 100 percent. you can't just kind of be committed because if you're kind of committed you're basically not committed it doesn't mean anything have to go all the way or not go at all um and that that was uh the, the philosophy as well it's like we're not gonna do hunger because we waited for 44 days uh 35 days we waited and we were like the best model prisoners uh we didn't do anything but day 35 we're like this shit is not changing we have to do something drastic and then i told my brother as well as you don't have to do this and but if once we do it you can't break no matter what they do, you the purpose of the hunger strike is to break them. Now, it's kind of a competition. You either break them or they break you. And 100%, we broke them. Like, there's no question about that. And how do you know? What was the moment that you know, oh, they are broken? It's, they gave us everything we asked for. And when I told that guy that it's personal now, he he knows and I mean, he knows the, the culture and everything as well, is that until my death, I'm not going to forget his face. And it's gonna, you know, it's it's not going gonna go anywhere. You know, one day we're gonna face each other and, and, and that's going to happen. That's not, and, and he knows that. So, and that guy was so broken after that. Um, the director, the director of that, department came and apologized to me while you're and in prison while i was in prison they all basically was were like left and right everybody was like trying to um they're trying to appease us and do all of that wow so i mean back to the day uh 
almost seven days before we got released, March 23rd, uh, my girlfriend really did a lot of, she became like the champion at this point. And she's American living in yeah, DC. Yeah, she's from New York. Uh, she's a New Yorker. Yeah, um, that'll do it. Yeah. That'll yeah. do it. <laughs> New Yorker, Jewish. Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's the best. You can, exactly, I'll take like, one Jew from New York against the whole Taliban. You exactly. Know what I mean? It's she, especially she's with a, the cell service and a yeah, Wi-Fi. She's a, she's a power to reckon with. Yeah. Uh, so, so what is she doing in the U.S. and what are your parents doing? So at this point, March 20th, she's been talking to state the whole time. She actually spent a whole month in Dubai trying to figure out. And then uh, the last minute she went to Doha to uh, to Qatar uh, and she's there like talk, meeting with all of the uh, State Department officials. And then in that meeting, when March 23rd, when the uh, education, girl education thing happens, it, things were kind of um, going to slip. She asks a meeting with the president, asks a meeting with uh, um, Secretary Blinken, and asks for a meeting with Mindy Sherman, senior State Department officials. And they, uh, she demands from State Department that she wants a meeting with a senior State Department official. She writes a press release. She writes a press release that says, Biden... Uh, Taliban agreed to release American hostage, but Biden does not take their offer because of optics and the hostage is um, condemned to, to death. So she writes this title and writes an entire scathing, scathing press release and sends this to everybody at State Department. Wow. Including the National Security Council. It goes to the president. So she's just fucking shit up. She's yeah. just like, look. If if you guys don't, they, she basically gives them, she's like, if you guys don't do anything in three days, we're releasing this. And that's, if you want to talk about optics. Yeah. And so she just knows like, so you're, I mean, this is crazy. So yeah. you're applying pressure to the guards on the inside on the Taliban. Yeah. She's applying pressure to the US government. Like, yo, let's get a plane yeah. over there. Like who gives yeah. a fuck about the bureaucracy, the yeah. optics, like let's just get this guy home. So she uh, she does this and she gets a meeting with Wendy Sherman, Assistant Secretary of State. And it's a 40 minute phone call. And you know, Assistant Secretary of State just, um, and my girlfriend is like 28 years old. So she's all her life, she's been a diplomat and like, old athlete who's who's dealt who she was the basically the main negotiator during the Iran deal during Obama's time so she's like been through fierce it all. yeah and she's like well this little girl from a Broadway director I'm gonna just like in two minutes it'll be over and I'll give her a run for her money and um they get on a phone call and for 45 minutes everything she says like often has an answer She's like, oh, we don't really like believe that the Taliban are have a deal, and it's like the deals don't work like that, and and then she's like, culturally, absolutely, that's a deal. Taliban are not gonna give it to you on a piece of paper that we're going to release him. If they said it to his dad, looked into his eyes and said he's going to shake, shook hands and told him he's going to release his dad, and this is the condition. Wendy Sherman keeps like trying to. Buffer by Buffer, time, like, yeah. And, uh, and you don't do, understand. Yeah, you don't you're understand. just a kid. Yeah, you direct exactly. musicals. Yeah, and we have like a, a transcript of the whole call. We have a video of the whole call is videoed. So you have the video. Yeah, video of the entire call, and it's crazy. Um, by the end, 
my girlfriend asks, we want a meeting with the president. We want a meeting with the secretary of state. And we want it in within three days, we're going to release this press release unless we get a meeting with the president. And the dynamics at this point, it's so funny to actually listen to the phone call and see the dynamic change. Wendy Sherman is like, please don't release the uh, press release. Give us some time. We just need this much time. And please, we will like, we'll, we'll, we're going to, we're going to do our best. And my girlfriend at this time is like, well, I can't promise that we're, we're going to release this, but I will talk to the rest of the team and we'll do what we can do. But this press release is going to get released in three days. And at this time we have like Jake Tapper on like, like speed dial. So they know that as well, yeah. that it's going to go directly on Jake Tapper. Um, we have all of this, all of it is ready to go out. Now, and in the press release, she has the line, oh, if not, if we don't send a plane, he'll gonna, be condemned yeah, to death. Yeah, he'll be killed. At that point, was that a, an exaggeration or was that? No, that was not an exaggeration because not only the from the Taliban side, but I was going to be like, because when I heard on March 23rd that they were not going to come anymore, because I knew they were going to, March 23rd was the date they were going to send a plane and then they didn't send a plane. I went on a hunger strike and I was like, I'm not stopping my hunger strike until I see a plane here. I'm either going to die here or you're going to send a plane. And you were prepared to die. I was prepared to die. Uh, not just because I, I wanted to make a point. It, it's, it's just to make a point. I was ready to die. Uh, cause it was so infuriating as well is the fact that they weren't going to come get me while I evacuated thousands of American citizens for them, like the all irony. of the work. Literally yeah. the reason I'm here is because I was saving American citizens and exactly. now you just need to save one American citizen. Yeah. And, and if I had there was saved, a... I had saved their asses, like Biden's ass because he like had a terrible evacuation and then right. he had left American citizens behind. You guys look stupid. Yeah. I covered for you. Mm -hmm. I protected these people. I set all this stuff up yeah. and now I'm in here, I'm and, in here. and no one's going to fight for me. Exactly. What the fuck is that? Exactly. And I, I, to make a point and everybody knew this as well that if if they didn't come i wasn't gonna eat and on top of that they didn't even negotiate your release exactly you negotiated your exactly. release. your dad negotiated your release exactly so are your parents still there are they in no, no they're they're in no they came back they so came they back. negotiate the release mm -hmm. and then how did they leave they're able to so they left before i got released they they went to doha to basically tell the u.s government it's like hey we have a deal we just came back from kabul and this is the deal you guys need to go back Right. So they came back. Um, and then Wendy Sherman keeps like, it's like, please, please, please don't release the, it's emails and all that. Right. It's like they keep sending emails. Um, uh, Tom West, who is the uh, special envoy for Afghanistan, president, special presidential envoy to Afghanistan, is like sending emails like, please don't release the yep. press, press release. And then it goes directly to Biden. And then Biden is like, send the plane. Oh, he's getting the press release. Uh, yeah, so Biden gets the press release and they talk to Biden. They all sit down and they're like, well, what are, what are, what are we going to do? So this piece of paper that your girlfriend wrote yeah. goes to the president of the United States. He yeah. looks at it and within a minute he's like, the fuck are we doing? Yeah, send the plane. Wow. And also like, because uh, I said before, uh, they know me too. Dr. Biden was my English teacher, so they know me. That part is crazy. Yeah. Do they connect the dots? Like... Yeah, they know me. Um, so then they send a plane on of all days, like they actually uh, uh, tell uh, tell my girlfriend that they're gonna send the plane. And then my girlfriend texts me on this 
smuggled phone. I get a text. It says, uh, Uncle Joe said yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally the text. Until Uncle Joe said yes. Um, and then on April 1st, a plane comes. I fly from Kabul to Doha. Uh, they send this massive C uh, C seventeen. And so, what does that it's release cute. look like? Like, what what? So you get the text, so you know you're going to get yeah. released. Yeah. So then what? And what, what are you feeling? What's your your heart rate? Yeah. So actually, right before that text, the the senior interrogator comes in and he's like, "Oh, you guys are, uh, you guys are getting out." You haven't eaten at this point for how many yeah. days? Um, because I hadn't eaten for like about two days. And then they're like, they bring me food and they're like, you're getting released. And I was like, oh, yes. Um, then the day before the plane, like uh, the day before April 1st, they, the senior interrogator comes in and he's like, oh, you got the plane is coming tomorrow. Because of operational security, State Department told that they were going to send the plane within like, because it was a Friday. So Friday is religious holiday. It's off. That was April 1st. And so my girlfriend, and my family they all thought that it's not going to be Friday. It's going to be Sunday. They, their thing was that I was going to get released on uh, Sunday. So that night when the senior interrogator comes in and he's like, you got, you are releasing, getting released tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, wow. Awesome. So when they leave, I get under the blanket and I call my girlfriend on the, uh, on the secret phone and I'm like, where the plane is coming tomorrow we're getting released he's like she's like oh my god i'm not ready <laughs> she says i'm not ready <laughs> she says i'm not this ready this is such a typical girlfriend response isn't <laughs> yeah. it or it's like i'm not ready to go yet how dare you try to get out of captivity i got stuff to do i was like oh shit okay i guess uh, I'll, I'll stay here yeah bad timing in prison bad timing i'm you you need to go get like a manny and petty and uh, you know <laughs> get 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 all of that out of the way before before i come yeah, in yeah of course you know you want to be but, presentable Exactly. But, but what she meant was like, she had to write a press release. She had to like communicate because we hadn't made public any of it. Did you laugh when she said that? <laughs> like you're like, in a jail was... cell and you're like, what do you want me to do? Come on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, at that time it was, it was because I'm also like, it could be like the most stressful, like sad people would be like falling and dying left and right. I'm still just like this like normal it's not oh really it, it's i am so calm about everything mentally you didn't break down at all physically no not at all it's it was just even without eating basically anything for three months hunger striking here and there yeah physically you felt fine i perfectly i had lost a lot of weight but didn't never felt better wow um are you doing anything to stay mentally sharp like sitting in a cell reading reading reading, reading a lot a lot of harry potter Really? I read the Harry Potter series in, in prison for the first time. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, this is basically you being back in a, you know, refugee camp again. Exactly. Like you're just a kid surrounded by people reading your books. Exactly. And that's your escape. Yeah. And it's just like... That is a beautiful circle. A lot of people who go like really crazy in prison is because of they just mentally like they go nuts. Yeah. The guy next to us in our cell, the British guy went nuts what do you mean he was going to like he was going insane every day um like what what was he doing breaking mentally just completely breaking crying screaming crying crying and like just 
he's like, I'm gonna kill myself. It's like, just suicidal. And were the guards harder on him because they saw weakness? No, they were just. They knew they had him. Yeah. Um, but I like didn't even like slightly phased me like, and and like I said, I was and everything is always funny. And so people think that I'm like really serious, but on the inside, I'm always like kind of happy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was just so relieving and light and just joking around with her at that point. I was like, okay, I will just, okay, princess, you're gonna, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, princess, you're gonna, uh, you you need, you need your Manny and Petty before I come. So, uh, are you staying fit at all? Are you like doing walking? Are you like doing pushups in the room? Just trying to like not atrophy. Yeah, exactly. And just trying to, I mean, I lost all muscle, everything, but it was not something that I can't just come back and gain all of it back. What is the bathroom situation? So they have to take us to the bathroom under guard. Uh, and they only took us like three times a day in the morning, afternoon, and then at night. And it's just a regular sort of... Yeah. I mean, there is no uh, shower there. We didn't shower for the first two months. Wow. We had the same clothes. We didn't change our clothes for the first two months. Didn't shower. Um, so... Sleeping on the ground. Sleeping on the ground. It, the, our, our clothes had changed colors. Wow. They were so dirty they had changed colors. Um, the water was extremely cold. Right. So it was all just completely like inhumane. So the guards come in on the last day. Mm-hmm. Your, your girlfriend says, not yet, wait. Yeah. <laughs> the guards come in and yeah. they basically say, hey, today is, you're getting ready. Yeah. So they, yeah, they came. That's how I, because my girlfriend wasn't told. The guards knew because the plane had to get permission to come into Kabul. So they knew, but. Uh, my girlfriend didn't know. Uh, so the next day I wake up, they're like, they give us new clothes. They like arrange a shower. They, we like take a shower. They try to make you look nice. Make us look nice. Yeah. So, and the next day they like, basically it was so funny. Two guards, they put us in a white sedan Corolla and just drive us to the airport. Uh, with me and my brother in the back without our hands tied or anything. Uh, what's ironic is as they were going through the checkpoint at the airport, the guards take their weapons from them. So we go into the airport and we're like, well, there's two of us. There's two of you. Neither of us have weapons. We're not going back. Wow. So, and then we see like this convoy of like armored land cruiser, like at least 10 just walk by, pass by us. And it's like, oh, that's, that's for us. And then. They try to put like the Corolla in the middle of the convoy and the, the convoy people are like, no, you can't get the Corolla. And the guards are like, we have the people that you came for, idiots. <laughs> and then we get in the middle of the convoy, drive onto the tarmac. And there's like a giant C-17, just like bigger than life size, like C-17, just look at it. And there's like, the airport is bustling with activity. There's so many people there, so many guards, like, the U.S. had sent like a hundred people to just get the two of us. Wow! Like security, diplomats, like everybody, the whole nine yards. And so you go from three months underground. All of a sudden, now you're in new clothes. You're showered. You're seeing life for the first time again. Is it bright? Like, how do you feel like physically, or do you just feel completely normal and unbroken? And um, so I go to the the bottom of the plane and I shake hands with um, uh, the guys. They gave me this 
this toy um deer and i'm like this is from your family and i knew what that was so in harry potter uh harry potter's um patronus uh harry potter's patronus is a uh a deer and it was sort of like i used to tell my girlfriend that she was my patronus and so she sent that from Doha with the guys and they gave me that and so and what like, did you feel like when it you, was just when you like, saw it? like unbelievable like emotionally emotional and we just got on the plane and got on the flight and then a lot of the guys that had come to get me on the plane were the guys from my team so back in the day they were all from the same team uh, and then they had brought so much food on the plane just for us um they they had a doctor on the plane they checked us out on the plane and then we landed and again we went to the military hospital did all the x-rays and um images everything checked us medically everything was fine and wow. then i got off the base and my girlfriend was waiting for me there <laughs> and so what happened when you see her um i get out of the the truck and she's right there she comes in we just hug and it's just like not a minute has passed it's like i had just left for like a couple minutes and i was back it was no different so um it's very very and when, when i got out a lot of people had given her like worst case scenarios it's like he's gonna be so broken and he's gonna be like you have to be very careful with him you have to treat him like a a broken piece of article and you have to be really careful with him and give him time to heal and give it. i came back and i was like so what are we doing <laughs> really and yeah I, I jumped back right in life like i didn't even i didn't miss a single day did you cry when you saw her no i i usually i actually don't cry like i have never cried in my like many years you've never cried <laughs> never cry it's just a thing that i don't do um even when i'm sad i'm sad for like five minutes and then i'm like on to the next chapter wow uh i mean why waste time on stupid unnecessary things that you can just <laughs> do some of the best things in life wow so you, what happens when you see her you do you guys meet up you're in doha yeah do you just go back to a hotel do you go yeah, eat what, yeah. what so, is like your first meal once you're out of captivity um, for three months yeah so we go back to our hotel room uh she had got like two hotel rooms for uh just one for me and her one for my brother so we go into the hotel room and we i i, I had a full beard um so we kind of like talk and then like i was hungry it's like okay let's go so we went uh it's in doha souk wakif this was they were getting it ready for the world cup so there's a lot of constructions but it's like really nice um for walking so we go get some food there and then we go back to take the food back to the hotel room we're up all night we didn't sleep just talking just talking we didn't sleep at all um the next day we had an appointment at the base with some other military folks we go there and then we do our meeting we go shopping <laughs> we go shopping in doha and um just didn't sleep for a long time you didn't sleep i didn't sleep for a long time it's just so much to catch up on <laughs> like just talking and i mean i came back like uh 
as soon as I came back to the U.S., um, four days after I got to the U.S., I went to Canada to give a TED Talk. I saw that. So it was, I, I wrote the speech like the night before and just gave it the next day. So it was, I, I didn't like waste a minute on even like remembering how it was back to work back to work and back to life and i mean i love everything about life and it's just i'm not gonna waste a single minute of it did you ever lose hope while in captivity was there ever a moment where you were like the darkness was overwhelming and you were like i don't know how i'm gonna get through this no it's just because the the life i've lived it's like i so many people i have so many people in my life so many people who would absolutely do everything to um, make sure I'm safe and everything that has happened in my life is always temporary. It's always changes. And and that's one thing I've time always um, heals everything and changes situations, changes life. Like I was, <laughs> I was a refugee kid and today I'm like, on podcasts <laughs> <laughs> and when did you see your parents um actually i didn't see my parents for a month why um because overwhelming work so much i came back to dc because my parents live in omaha i came to dc went to canada for the podcast came back from canada uh had so much things still needed to be done in terms of our, the organization so i kept doing that um, and also the five Brits that were still in captivity, I was, you know, doubling down on getting them out. I went to London uh, to meet with them uh, for an office. I met with their families. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I like I didn't go see my parents. I went to London first to try to get those yeah. other people out. Yeah. And then I went and I gave them all the right the foreign office. I gave them all the right contacts of the people who were helpful in my release and gave them the strategy and continue to work with them uh, for the next three and a half months until they got released. So all the people you were in captivity with all got released? Yeah, they all got released. And um, I did a lot of work on that. And I didn't like relax until I got all of them out. And what did they say to you when you were being released? You were leaving and yeah. you look at them and you have to say goodbye to them, right? Well, yeah. And I was like, I'm not, I promise you guys, I made them a promise. I was like, I'm not going to sit until you are all out of here. And I was like, you guys are all getting out of here. And I'm going to make sure that you guys do. And the reason they were not getting out is because the Brits are fucking stupid. Like, their foreign office is so dumb. <laughs> they were not even talking to the people who could get them out. They were talking to the wrong people The altogether. wrong fucking people. Like, my first meeting, I went and I'm meeting with their, like, lead guy who is in charge of this whole fucking operation. I'm sitting with him and he's... He has this fucking problem. He's like, yeah, man, we can't like really see to solve this problem. I gave him a phone number. I'm like, call this guy right then and there. And he's like, oh, are you sure that's the right idea? That's a good idea. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely fucking sure that's a good idea. Yeah, call I was this there, guy. bro. You're yeah. not going to trust me? Like, hello. So he leaves in the middle of the meeting, goes outside, calls, talks to the guy for 10 minutes. He comes back. The problem is solved. I'm like, fuck have you guys been doing? What have you guys, you guys don't know what the what you guys what yeah it's been doing. three months like my yeah. girlfriend is able to get a press release to yeah. biden you guys can't the whole country can't get people out yeah and then i went my girlfriend also went uh, to london with me and she goes everywhere with me now because she's just 
we're just a tie we we never separate yeah we go everywhere together and like she's she's directing a a, a reading right now and i'm there every day just wow because, um we can't seem to be separate from each other wow so what did you tell the families when you saw them like oh my husband is in captivity what do you tell someone like that so i mean they saw me released uh they see a lot of hope and i was with their um their loved ones in prison and i had i had letters from them as well from some of them i had letters so i gave them their letters the family um and then i basically sat them down and i told him look this is not just gonna happen you have to make it happen my girlfriend my family they all made it happen it didn't just miraculously randomly one day taliban were like we're gonna just release him it we had to do a lot of work and then i met with all of the families and gave them the strategies gave them the information gave them i met with them several times over zoom and the, for the next three and a half months kept the contact with them wow and when they got released they were really grateful did you see them after they got released oh yeah and what did they say to i you? went back to london and uh, i met with them and yeah i mean even I, I had a major role in their release so they were really grateful and did they cry when they saw you a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah um so then they got released and it's just the work keeps going man it's so many fucking people out there and so much work um there's still hostages out there american right and other uh coalition partners so we continue to do that work so can you so, talk to me about human first coalition and sort of what that is and yeah, so, so far we have been involved in about the release of about 10 hostages uh, that were held by Taliban. In addition to that, we are evacuating people from Afghanistan and then also helping people with their cases who are eligible to come to the U.S. And then all the people that we have evacuated, there's about 80,000 of them who came to the U.S. on a two-year parole uh, visa, so it expires in August. So we worked with Congress to enact, um, introduce this uh, bill in Congress called the Afghan Adjustment Act, which basically, like, um, after thorough vetting of all these people, gives them a permanent residency here in the U.S. These people aren't; these are not somebody we are bringing from other random countries. These are Afghans that we evacuated on our planes, and they're here in the U.S., but they need a permanent residency because without that, they can't stay here. Right. So, doing a lot of that work and continuing to ramp up the uh, humanitarian aid and the more the Taliban ramp up their uh, anti-human rights activities and their war against women the more we ramp up our activities to help and alleviate some of those things and help some of those women help some of those uh, kids children girls wow everybody and the release of those 10 hostages that comes through the same type of work that it took to get you released it's calling the right people yeah offering them mm -hmm. something i guess money access yeah, legitimacy and, and just telling the taliban that it's not in their best interest to be holding hostages because the legitimate government does not hold hostages mm -hmm. it's against every international law to just hold somebody without a reason mm -hmm. there is no reason to be holding those people they haven't committed any crimes they were there in afghanistan in the first place to help in some way they weren't there to break any laws mm -hmm. so wow and so now your day-to-day -day is spent working with the coalition, working to get people evacuated, and that's yeah. how you spend... That's how everybody, every day is spent, unless I'm, you know, 
on a on a musical <laughs> to help my girlfriend uh, direct a musical. I mean, what a wild double life. So you yeah. come back and now your girlfriend is working on musicals. How long were you guys dating when you were in captivity? Uh, about four months. Four months? Yeah, we actually met through the work. Um, she, uh, I was in D.C. evacuating these people and um, she had some families in Afghanistan that she was connected to somehow, uh, a musician. Um, and she was trying, trying and trying and wasn't able to get them out because they were a target for the Taliban. Um, and then she sees a special about the work that I'm doing on CNN and she calls a CNN producer that I need the number, phone number of this guy. And this, she gets my phone number from CNN and then um, messages me in, while I'm in DC and she's like, I, I um, have this family that I really need to get out and uh, I will help you in your work if you help me get this family out. And I was like, um, here's the deal. I can put your family on a list, but that's just a list. We have thousands of people on those lists. And by the time I'm able to help your family, it may be too late. And I'll give you a deal though. If you come volunteer for me in DC and help me get this work done, I will prioritize your family. And she's like, I'll be there. She's like, I'm in New York. It takes about four hours for me to get on the train and make it to D.C., but I'll be there. And I was like, oh, New York. Nice. I didn't know you were in New York. (laughs) Uh, I thought you you were in D.C. So she comes and I evacuate her family. Um, She's actually living in uh, Queens now with her family. And she's interning on Phantom of the Opera. Wow. So... She's learning to be a conductor. She was actually a conductor in Afghanistan. So she was the only first and only female conductor of the Afghanistan's first and only female, all-female orchestra. So, yeah, she's here in Queens now with her family, and she's learning to be a conductor on Phantom. Um, So my girlfriend also does a lot of this work, and if you see her email inbox, it's like Taliban, Broadway. <laughs> There's no in between. It's like musicals and Taliban. That is so crazy. I mean, there's people listening to this that can't get a call back or the person they're dating for four months like yeah. is ghosting them. Like, And after four months, your girlfriend's writing to the president like, yo, free my man. Yeah, exactly. That is so crazy. Yeah, and it's like we just have such a strong connection. And it's like she's she's going to be directing some of like the most beautiful musicals in the next this year. She's... She's uh, directing um, Sunset Boulevard at the Kennedy Center uh, end of this month. Oh, I'm going. Yeah, it's, it's so gorgeous. It's Stephanie J. Block is in it. And um, the girl who played Moana. Oh, yeah, She's yeah, yeah. in it. Wow. Uh, so it's like A-list stars all. And then she after that, she's directing Evita at um art then in dc and then comes to broadway i mean this is unbelievable and now is there any part of you that like what motivates you to continue to do the work like is there any part of you that's like look i got my people out that i needed to get out i've paid my debts i've done more than that this is a lot of stress maybe i just go you know work on musicals and yeah and live a normal life you know so after high school when i started working with that team and it was some of the most interesting people i've ever met in my life one of the guy was like doing professional circus like he would like 
put himself on a fire and jump from like 100 feet into a swimming pool. <laughs> so it was those kinds of people. And I don't want to do anything ordinary. Like I don't want to just go and have a nine to five job and be an accountant. I, I'm not that an accountant is a boring job, but it's, but it's more normal than what <laughs> yeah, you're doing. Exactly. So I always want to do something interesting. Like I want to do things that are fun. I want to do things that are bigger than life. I want to do things that I do. And I'm like, no one else is doing this. Yeah. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. And make a, make an impression, make a stamp yeah, on the world. It's, it's like, it's everybody is, there's so many ordinary people in the world. It's like, Seven billion people, and you know, six billion nine hundred ninety-nine million are very boring. Yeah, you spent and, a yeah, you spent a long time blending in. Yeah, you don't so, want to blend in anymore. <laughs> no, I mean it's you. You have to stand out and and do something uh, extraordinary because life is so precious and so short and so, um, just you can't just live on wasting that. I mean, there's a lot of people who great for them but I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Even if that means going back to Afghanistan and evacuating more people. Yeah. Or... Yeah. And I mean, everything's on the table. Like, although my girlfriend holds my passport now. Oh, I, does she? She, she's she like, she you're not going to, anywhere, motherfucker. Yeah. She has to approve everywhere I go. <laughs> yeah. I'm hundred yeah. percent. And and eventually one day you're going to probably have kids maybe. Hopefully. And you know, that's going to probably change your dynamic a little bit too. Yeah. But I also want to, uh, if, if I have kids, I don't want to raise them in in a bubble or a shelter like they're gonna experience the world and they're gonna go to a lot of these places with us and they're gonna experience a lot of that as well and they're gonna learn the value of life as well they're mm -hmm. they're not just gonna be some sheltered kids they're gonna have a very interesting life as well and they have to live up to you know they have to live up to their parents <laughs> right yeah do you have any regrets from the time that you were in captivity is there anything you wish you had done differently or mistakes that you made you're like oh, if i hadn't have done that maybe i would have been released quicker or i mean not necessarily like that but sometimes i'm just like i should have like cranked the heat a little bit like sometimes because even like when you are there you're always like calculating like you're taking calculator risk it's like how far is too far so i'm like i could have taken it a little bit farther you wish you went like, further yeah just you like are a little crazy. bit further you are an insane <laughs> just motherfucker. A little bit, yeah wow um that's that's one of the things i always think i was like i should have taken it should have like i i went on a hunger strike nine days i mean should have went like for at least 20 set a record or something you know it's just like those things like you get a chance once in a life and it's like i should have just gone 10 more days yeah 20 days hunger strike or maybe 30 days that is so crazy and now is there anything that you want to do in your life that is not related to this work where you're like Oh, I would be interested in pursuing this thing or this other aspiration that you have or a dream now that you've gone through so much. Um, I think raising awareness about issues that are uh, very close to my heart. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, I want to get into the documentary film world. Yeah. Uh, I want to create documentaries about things that uh, actually matter. Uh, and I'm, you know, slowly getting into that world. And uh, hopefully I can make some art pieces that are more um creates more awareness than the work because i'm doing the work it's creating some diff some change but on a bigger scale you have to get to the media that like, gets to more people right widespread and so, you see the power of a media apparatus that mm -hmm. you know when you write a press release and all of a sudden hit exactly. jake tapper things exactly. can happen yeah so that's that's what i want to do and i want to i want to create art i want to create films i want to create um 
things that would uh, raise more awareness wow. about all sorts of issues, all things. I I don't leave any issue out there. If there is something that needs to be changed, I'm on it. Wow. I mean, this is this has been such a fascinating conversation. My mind is blown and then put back together again and then blown again. I'm like it's so impressed and inspired by you. Thank you. And your fortitude and your story and just your resilience, I think, Thank more you. than anything. I've really learned a lot from that. Like the, I think about the problems that I go through in my life and I'm like, I'm not kidnapped by the Taliban in a cell. So I can yeah. I can probably get through the things I'm dealing with in my life. If you were able to go on a hunger strike and stay mentally tough for that. I can probably be mentally tough in my own battle. Yeah, I mean, you just have to, you just have to pick your battles. You know, it's, I, I don't go around having a chip on my shoulder saying everybody that I've been to Taliban prison or I've been a refugee or I've done these difficult things in my life, um, that everybody should be on that level. Everybody has their own, like somebody's problem because they are late to work is probably they can compare their problems to, to mine. It's not like. Every everybody's tolerance for difficult situations is different, and I don't want to like create this narrative that everybody should just forget about their problems because they're not big enough. To them, they're probably mountains. Right. Yeah. So, I've, I've heard that quote: "Suffering is like a gas." Yeah. I think Viktor Frankl said that. That even if you're in a really difficult situation or relatively a less difficult situation, that suffering you feel just yeah. ab can, ab absorbs the space, it expands to the space yeah, that you have. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what, one of the most important thing is that you must have a tribe. Mm -hmm. You must find the people that think like you, that um, work like you, that have the same things matter to them. That's where that's where the difference. Yeah, people that are, you need a tribe and people that will be willing to fight for you. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So, yeah, that's... That's what um, my philosophy in life is to just continue to get those people and continue to fight. Absolutely. Well, man, Safi, I'm so inspired. This is truly like an amazing conversation. Thank, you so, thank you so much for spending the time to chat with me and, and share Absolutely. all this with me. I'm, I'm blown pleasure. away. Um, any last thoughts, any last words? I'll give you the last word if you would like, just if you want to say anything to the people about how they can support, how they can support. Uh, your work in Afghanistan and any words of encouragement for people that are dealing with, you know, challenging things in their life. You have the floor. Yeah. So Afghanistan continues to suffer uh, and it, it just looks like everybody has forgotten about it. Uh, the only country in the world where women can't go outside their home, they can't work. They're not allowed literally to step outside their front door. They can't go to school. They are banned from universities, from schools, from every aspect of public life. They continue to suffer. The humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan continues to worsen every day. Almost 95% of people are not getting anything to eat. And that's unbelievable to even think about it. We just don't understand what that means. But just think about it a little bit. If you weren't able to get food... Uh, you were having one meal a day, and that's all you could get. So what we are doing, we are we're we're trying to uh, fill some of the gaps. We can't do it all. It's an overwhelming task. It's over thirty million people that needs to be fed, but we are doing our small part, and we're doing all of that work through Human First Coalition, and our website is humanfirstcoalition.org. Uh, it's a five hundred one c three, so it's tax deductible. You can deduct all of that from your taxes. Um, in addition to that, just do the best you can at anything you do. You could be a janitor, and if you do the best job at being a janitor, 
that's enough. So just don't do a mediocre job because it's not worth it. Thank you, Safi. Thank you.